We're here with Fletcher Prouty. This is May 5th, 1989, and we're going to be discussing uh, aspects of American history through starting from at some point before World War II and going up to the present day uh, to start out with and establish a frame of reference to everything that we will be discussing. Why don't you give an overview of your 23 years of active military service in the United States Air Force and, and where that really started and how you got into it? Well, I came on duty uh, before the beginning of World War II. I went to the University of Massachusetts and they had an ROTC program. And uh, in those days, the mid-30s, very few of us knew anything about the military, least of all about ROTC. <laughs> what I observed was that out on campus there were some horses. And being a city boy, I don't know anything about a horse. And I asked whose horses they were, and they belonged to the Army. So we had a compulsory freshman year ROTC, which was book work. But the second year, they taught us to ride horses, because this was a cavalry unit. And for me, that was new. Uh, leading the horse was something. Riding him was really something else. And for the junior and senior year, you had to be selected to go into the course because that led to being commissioned as an officer in the reserves with the U.S. Army. And I was selected, one of 22 men, to go in there. And that meant we practically had our own horse. Three days a week we rode horses, and, and we, of course, were getting cavalry training and cavalry education in our classes. The summer between junior and senior year, we actually took 40 horses and rode over 600 miles on horseback in a, as an army march. As a, you know, we really experienced what it's like to take six horses for 600 miles. At the end of our senior year, when it came time for graduation, uh, we received in our, rolled up in our diploma, our orders to active duty. We weren't drafted, we weren't asked whether we wanted to go or not, we were just given orders and off we went to, I went to uh, Pine Camp up in Watertown, New York, which was a 4th Armored Division. That was what year? That was in 1941 on about okay. July 10th, somewhere around there. In other words, uh, World War II was, was going in Europe. We were not involved directly, and uh, the Army was beginning to build new divisions. One of them was this 4th Armored Division in northern New York. Uh, the Army had decided to do away with horses, and we had no horse cavalry to be ordered to. Well, uh, something interesting, little things that happen sometimes lead to uh, important things down the line. The very first man that I reported to as an officer when I came on duty that day was Creighton W. Abrams, who became Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army and was our commander in Vietnam years later. Abrams was from my own hometown, Springfield, Massachusetts. He was a graduate of West Point famous for his football playing, a very skilled author with a terrific career during World War II, where he was the brigade commander for General Patton's lead brigade of the Third Army that crashed across Europe, defeated the Germans, and shook hands with the, with the Russians. A terrific man, great neighbors. So he was the very first man I reported to in July of 1941, and had much to do with guiding my early career. Shortly after that, uh, I got orders from Pine Camp, New York, to go to Fort Knox, Kentucky, to a communication officer's course. And uh, while I was there, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. So then we were in the war. Uh, about a month and a half after that, I came back to uh, the 4th Armored Division. And uh, in some of the mail I picked up when I returned there, 
was an offer from the U.S. Army Air Corps uh, to fly in the Army. And uh, I already had a flying license. I had been through flight training and a civilian course before, when I, while I was in college. And since I had a license, the Air Force had taken the list of people with licenses that had written to me and said, if you want to transfer to the Air Force, you can stay in grade and, and go right along. So I talked to uh, uh, Captain Abrams, and he said, sure, it's, it's all U.S. Army. We, we're doing this all together. We're for this Air Force business. Why don't you go ahead? So I transferred down to Maxwell Field in Alabama and began flight training. And, and that, that was, was about when? That was in the, uh, I think about May of 1942. I got my wings in uh, November 10th of 1942 and uh, immediately was ordered into the Air Transport Command and to a, an assignment at the University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont, which was very interesting. They taught us a lot about instrument flying and Arctic flying because at that time <clears throat> there was uh, uh, the intent on the part of the U.S. Army that we were going into the north and help the Soviets uh, and, and of course we'd be exposed to flying Arctic weather and all that sort of thing in the transport command as our divisions would be operating as ski divisions and actually the 4th Armored Division had been issued skis and other northern gear so they could operate with the Russians in their territory. Well, now this is a sudden change of U.S. Army plans to, to have divisions operating on Soviet territory and to have us flying on Soviet territory. I've often wondered at why my orders went that way because when I went to 4th Armored Division, I all of a sudden had to learn to ski and everything else as well as drive tanks or operate tanks. And then when I went into the Air Force, I ended up with a comparable set of orders to Burlington, Vermont, and from Burlington, I was transferred to northern Maine, to Presque Isle, Maine. <laughs> we arrived and the temperature was about 30 below zero. And uh, as things happen in the military sometimes, it was an abrupt shift, where there were 50-some young officers just out of flying school in this group in the Air Transport Command at Presque Isle, Maine. And I happened to be the only one that was a first lieutenant because of my prior duty with the Armored Force. So a telephone call one day came, and they asked for me, it was from Washington, and they said, we want you to tell all 50 officers, and they read the list for me, <laughs> that you are being transferred from Presque Isle, Maine, immediately to Palm Beach, Florida, en route to Africa for overseas uh, service. And that was when? And that was, uh, let me see, that was in uh, probably February, yes, that was in February of 1943. Okay. So we turned in all our Arctic gear, our fur-lined jackets and our heavy boots and everything, and drove to Palm Beach, Florida, and within a month or so, uh, almost all 50 of us were in Africa. Huh. I was assigned to what in those days was called uh, uh, the Gold Coast, British West Africa, now is called Ghana. I flew out of a base at the city of Accra, a new air base that ha actually had been created by Pan American for uh, an airline they planned to operate there before the war called Pan-Africa. Fortunately for us, many of our instructors over there were these Pan-American pilots who had uh, assumed their reserve commission ranks of captain and major, and they trained this group of new lieutenants that had just arrived. Uh, we began flying from uh, Ghana across Africa to India, 
We flew to Cairo, we flew to North Africa, and at that time it was not too long after the American invasion of North Africa so that we could fly to Casablanca, to Oran, and to Algiers, but we could not fly to Tunis because the Germans held Tunis, and they held the desert all the way across to Egypt, so we couldn't fly in that part of North Africa. But as transport command pilots, we were flying both uh, troops and supplies into this battle area. A lot of times we just landed on bare ground, unloaded the plane, and go back and get another load. It involved flying the Sahara Desert, sometimes as often as five days out of seven. And we just fly across the desert. We got to know the desert as well as we knew our home country. Um, interestingly there, we, we were immersed in flying. We got just an awful lot of flying, a lot of good experience with these uh, Pan American pilots and pilots from other airlines. And one day, uh, a lieutenant colonel who, to those of us who were lieutenants, was a pretty elevated rank in those days, and an older man who had been a vice president of Pan American asked me to fly with him on a flight. I didn't realize it at the time, but it represented a personal checkout. He needed somebody uh, to do some other flying. He wanted, wanted some experience with me. So we flew a few times together across Africa. And uh, then he said, uh, Lieutenant, uh, we are going to use you now for a VIP pilot. Who was uh, this man? His name was George Krager. Very, very interesting man. He was born in Yugoslavia. And he had a great interest in the Balkans through the war, and uh, did some uh, a lot of uh, undercover work with units in the Balkans. But uh, basically, was a strong pilot, a good maintenance man, and a very knowledgeable airline-type operator. I learned an awful lot from George Krager. Um, what what this meant for my career was that a few days later, I was notified that I was going to pick up a. a general in Casablanca and fly him wherever he wanted to go and as long as he needed a, a pilot and crew. Well, this turned out to be Major General Omar Bradley. Without question, one of the finest military men, one of the finest men I've ever met in my life. I, I knew General Bradley for many years, even when he was with the Bull of the Watch Company after his retirement. We flew him uh, into the battle zone areas of North Africa in Constantine and uh, areas near, uh, I think it was called Talarkma, and Bone, and uh, these are places just east of Algiers, over in the, where the, our army was fighting and uh, getting its first taste of uh, battle against the Germans. And uh, General Bradley loved to fly. I mean, actually pilot the plane. He wasn't a pilot, but he liked to sit in a seat and fly the plane. So as soon as we get off the ground, I'd send my co-pilot back, invite the general up front, and he'd sit there and he'd fly the plane, and he really enjoyed it. But what I enjoyed was he'd look down out of the plane, well, not very high, an old DC-3, very comfortable plane, and he'd tell me all the action that had taken place below. He'd say, now see those three tanks over there? Those are German tanks. We knocked them out last week. And now look over here. Well, you know, it's a terrific briefing of exactly how General Bradley was operating this campaign in North Africa. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> after that, I was—I uh, flew with him for a couple of weeks, and he was called back to um, to uh, England for what, some meetings. What period was that? This that? is about uh, this is about uh, May of uh, '43, April and May of '43, I'd say, uh, about the best I can recollect. And then after that, I was asked to fly many different uh, VIPs, each time a separate trip, 
and I was transitioned into a Lockheed Lodestar. We called it a C-57. Very nice little airplane for pilot point of view. It would take six to eight passengers. It had been mahogany lined, and a, there was a typewriter in it. There was a bed in it, and it was a real nice plane for a general or some other official and his party. And it practically was my own airplane. I just flew it all the time. Had a very good co-pilot, and a radio man, and a flight engineer. Well, in October, I was told to get some new tires on the plane because I'd be going on a long trip. Went to Casablanca and picked up a man and his crew that were on the orders listed as a U.S. Geological Survey team. And uh, had the plane ready for them when they arrived. And, and uh, uh, I, I met uh, Brigadier General C.R. Smith. Well, Smith was the founder and president of American Airlines. He's a Brigadier General in reserve duty with the Air Transport Command. An absolutely magnificent person. And uh, we left uh, Casablanca. He had three men with him who were geological survey team experts. And uh, he told me we were going to Tehran. Well, I had been there, so it was a trip that I was quite familiar with. By that time, the Germans had surrendered at Cape Bon in uh, Tunisia. And Africa was now open. We could fly all the way across North Africa to Cairo and from Cairo on to Tehran. I don't know if many people realize it, but at the surrender of the Germans in Bon, more German troops surrendered to the British and American armies there than at any other time during World War II. It was an enormous victory when they wrapped up uh, this campaign in North Africa against Rommel and, uh, and his armies. The old Desert Fox had been the enemy and the opponent of uh, General Montgomery and General Alexander and General Bradley for years. And I should take a minute out to tell you an experience there that I think was rather interesting. On the morning of the surrender, uh, I had been flying General Bradley and I was told to get my plane ready for another flight early in the morning. And I sat there in the cockpit of the plane and looked out across this big open area of, uh, of uh, north of uh, Bizzurri in North Africa. And thousands and thousands of German soldiers lined up and marched out to surrender. And as they did, they were singing. And they sang the, the uh, Australian marching song, Waltzing Matilda. Well, the Australians and the British always marched to that song, but at the time of the surrender, the Germans sang that song. And you never heard anything so thrilling as tens of thousands of German troops yelling this waltzing Matilda to their adversaries, to whom they were surrendering, uh, the British and the Australians and the Americans who were lined up on the other side of the field. Then the British and the Australians and the Americans came out to accept the surrender of the Germans, and what did they sing? Lilla Marlena, the German song. Now, there's something about this hostility of two great armies. It's like the hostility of two great football teams. They're adversaries, but they understand each other. I wouldn't say they had become friends, but you can see just in the way the songs were done and the, the whole surrender ceremony, which for the Germans was a very sad event, you know, uh, and how it was handled. It was, it was really something. I don't think warfare has reached that level since then. Well, as immediately as the surrender was over, which amounted to their stacking their arms and turning everything over, and then finally the German generals up front, led by a lieutenant general whose name I, I failed to recall, 
uh, 11 generals, I believe, surrendered to General Montgomery, and that phase of the war was over. Well, within minutes of that, some vehicles started coming toward my plane through the dust of the field, right up to the plane, and an American officer said, you're going to take these passengers to Casablanca. And he put these 11 German generals on my airplane. Well, I didn't have a gun, I have a pistol, I had nothing on board the plane. I presumed they weren't armed, but there were 11 of them. And I got thinking, you know, I'll sit up there in this plane flying along, and they'll come up front and they'll say, hey, fly this across the Mediterranean and take us back to Germany. I well, how am I going to... So I told the generals that I didn't have much gas, and I had to land at, at Algiers to get some gas, and then we'd go on to Casablanca. They wanted to know where I was going to take them. I found out that the Germans, most of them spoke English. One of them was a graduate of uh, New York University, and I forgot another was from another American college. And I sat in the back of the plane while my co-pilot flew the plane talking with them most of the way from, from Tunis to Casablanca, which in those days took about seven hours in old DC-3. And that was very interesting. For instance, one of the German generals, uh, in talking with me, found out that I had been with Armored Force. He said, oh, then you can tell us about American artillery. He said, how does the American automatic artillery work? He said, we, we have been fighting the British for years, and then when we came to the Americans, all of a sudden we were hit with automatic artillery. How does that work? Well, I knew that Fort Sill had developed a method of using artillery which would appear to bring down all the guns at once huh. by firing a single gun off at an angle, and then by using trigonometry, studying the degree of the angle, and by using aerial photographs, the elevation of the land, and they were able then to move all the guns on the target instantly, and the Germans thought it was our Germans. So I told them, I said, I don't have the slightest idea. I wasn't going to tell them. But I took these Germans into Casablanca, and I understand that, uh, I never knew during the walk where they went, but I understand they were kept so-called prisoners at the Greenbrier restaurant, I um, mean the Greenbrier Hotel down in West Virginia, and that was the end of the war for them. It was an interesting little incident because, uh, frankly, for an hour or so, I was a little concerned about how to handle 11 German generals. They, 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 were, they were gentlemen, and I'll tell you one thing, I don't think they wanted to go across the Mediterranean. For them, the war was over. That was exactly. the end of it. They'd had their war. Uh, but I was uh, telling you then, we were going with the geological survey team uh, a few months later, and this is how we could fly across Africa because the Germans had surrendered. <clears throat> we got into Cairo, flew from Cairo to Tehran, Tehran in those days was very interesting because uh, an enormous number of refugees had slipped across the border of Iran uh, into Iran that pr predominantly were uh, Russian Jewish people who were fleeing the, the German armies that were coming into Russia. So Tehran was a very, very busy place. After a couple of days there, General Smith said, we're going down to Bahrain, an island in the, in the Persian Gulf. And as we landed at Bahrain, he came over to me and he said, uh, here's some money. I want you to go in town and buy some paint and some civilian clothes. And uh, he said, I want you to paint your airplane. Paint, obscure the, the uh, U.S. Air Force markings on it, obscure the numbers on it, all the identification, the visible identification. And I don't want you in uniform tomorrow. I want you to be in civilian clothes, you and your crew. And... Uh, I said, what does that mean? He said, well, just don't have your insignia on and see if you can get some another kind of a shirt or something then you, that are khaki clothes. Well, we did. We went in town and we bought colored shirts and we bought a red necktie and all that sort of thing. So we were civilians. And the sergeant painted over the plane 
And then the general came out and he said, uh, now this morning we're going to fly across the rest of the Persian Gulf, very small, 15, 20 miles, into Saudi Arabia. Well, we all knew that we had to avoid Saudi Arabia. It was neutral, and we were not allowed to fly over him. For all the flying we had done in the Middle East, we'd avoid Saudi Arabia. But the general said he had special permission for this flight. And that when I got over the sands of Saudi Arabia, right across the beach, that I should find, <coughs> I should spot a vehicle there, and that that vehicle would uh, break open a barrel of oil and drive across the desert on an area that was smooth and I would land in the direction of the line of that oil, which made a pretty good deal. So I circled the place a few times after I saw them running this line of oil across the sand and realized it was, it looked firm enough and it looked smooth enough, so I landed on it. It was beautiful, good as any airport I ever landed on. Well, it turned out that General Smith had been sent there to meet the representatives of the California Standard Oil Company who were holding their U.S. franchise on the oil fields of, of Arabia, Saudi Arabia. This was a really very important contact with the Saudi Arabians and with the oil industry. And that was in October of 1943? October of 1943. Okay. And uh, we got out of the plane and uh, they very kindly took the whole crew as well as the General's party and drove us over to an area where there were some oil pipes that I would say were 10-inch pipes sticking out of the ground maybe a foot with caps on them. They'd unlock a cap, spin it off, and oil would just bubble out of the ground by itself. No pump, no nothing. All they said was, General, come and get it and you can have all you want. You know, there's oil here for years. Well, remember, this is 43, and they've been pumping that oil ever since. Now, they said uh, <coughs> General, but the, the General was the person from... Uh, Standard Oil? No, the general was Smith. He was the president of American Airlines. He was a Texan. His party were the geological survey people. He was just head of the party. So he represented the U.S. government for them, and uh, they were representatives of California Standard Oil Company, later known as Aramco, or later founders of Aramco. Okay. Um, they told us that although they were living comfortably in the sands of of uh, Arabia. We couldn't see any buildings, we couldn't see, uh, there were no trees, there were no roads, there was nothing in that part of Arabia in those days. They said, if you don't mind, for lunch, we'll get in this little boat we have and go out and see if we can catch a fish or two and we'll eat the fish. Well, that seemed pretty good. So we got in the boat and not long after that we caught enough fish, we went on shore, they had a Filipino cook, he cooked the fish, and I forgot what else we had, but we had our lunch there. We took off that afternoon, went back to Bahrain, spent the night there. But uh, that's the first clandestine exercise I was ever <laughs> involved in. We went in as though we were civilians, just by painting the plane. And that was to avoid the necessity of appearing to violate the neutrality of Saudi Arabia as opposed to us, as opposed to the Russians? Right, it was, it was purely a formality, so that the Saudi Arabians, if our plane had been detected by anyone in Bahrain or anyone else, anywhere else, could say that uh, with the, only a civilian plane had visited them and had to do with the oil party that held the franchise in their country and that would be okay. What we had done is remove our insignia, the general removed his insignia, and purely formality. It's part of the way you, you do clandestine exercises anywhere. You, you, uh, you set up the, your agreements and you follow them. Um, that visit to Saudi Arabia was much more important than we realized at the time because the Cairo conference between the British 
and, and Americans, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Chiang Kai-shek, took place only a month later. And uh, one of the decisions of that period was to erect immediately, without delay, right during the war, I think it was a 50,000-barrel uh, refinery right there on that place called Ras Tanura on the coast of Arabia. So you will see that we were planning on the use of Arabian oil even during World War II uh, if we needed it. So you would, uh, oil was one of the biggest things we needed in those days, fuel. So <clears throat> that small visit, but important visit, played a key role in the development of the Saudi Arabian oil assets even during World War II, which uh, we didn't realize at the time, at least I didn't, but uh, I'm sure General Smith knew why he had been sent there. I took General Smith from there to uh, Karachi, which at that time was in India, but it hadn't divided into Pakistan, and left him there, flew back to Casablanca, and uh, then this Colonel Crager, who had started me doing the VIP flying, said we were going to fly to, um, to Cairo for a while, and we'd operate out of Cairo. And I didn't say why. But that afternoon, I met some American pilots who were civilian employees and civilian pilots with American Airlines who had come over from Washington, and they told me that they were going to fly President Roosevelt's party from their landing in North Africa to Cairo uh, at the end of November. And they wanted to know the safest air route from the North Africa to Cairo and so on. So that was when I began to realize that something was beginning to happen uh, scheduled in uh, Cairo, which later became the Cairo Conference at the end of November. So General C uh, Colonel Crager and I went to Cairo, and we established an operating base there because during the Cairo Conference, uh, Cairo being in the reach of German bombers, we had to be very careful to separate the staffs and protect them from being all in one place. Uh, much of the British staff stayed up in Palestine, which uh, called Israel now, but in Palestine, the American staff was separated around, and they needed aircraft to to fly them back and forth and all that, and that's, uh, they assigned that job to me. So I stayed during the Cairo conference and uh, did a lot of flying in and out of that area while they were meeting, and then from there, one morning, was told to take a group to Tehran. So I went out to the plane early, and. Uh, uh, was told I was taking a Chinese group to Tehran. Well, the Chinese had been at the Cairo conference, so I knew they were in the area, but I was surprised to find that they were going to Tehran. Uh, they, I think about six or eight men came in the plane, and I flew them to uh, Habania in Iraq for refueling from Habania up to Tehran. And uh, when I landed in Tehran, I landed right behind a very distinctive plane that, uh, that Churchill flew in, uh, called a York. And uh, when we left the airport, which was a few miles out of town, our party with the Chinese was just behind the, the uh, Churchill's party of British going into Tehran. Well, during the Tehran conference, the Russians were in control of the security of the city of Tehran. And as we approached the city, the center of the city, the entire area was enclosed with about a oh, 12 to 15 foot high uh, wall of purple cloth, heavy purple cloth. It, really a striking thing. And uh, it circled the entire city. Now, the object of it was anybody inside 
the purple cloth was cleared for the conscience. Anyone outside was not cleared and nobody was allowed through the cloth. It's a pretty good way of, of uh, setting up security quickly. And all around that purple cloth there were Russian soldiers carrying automatic weapons. And as our two small caravans of cars approached the gate up, uh, through this cloth wall, uh, Churchill's party was stopped for quite a long time. And of course that meant we were stopped. And the Chinese were talking with us. We asked if we knew anything about what the delay was and all, and we didn't know. It turned out that Churchill was traveling in his wartime, what would you call, jumpsuit, a single piece suit with a zipper up the front, you know, and, and uh, had nothing in his pockets. No ID, no nothing. He was smoking his typical cigar, and, but the Russia, it wasn't good enough for the Russians. No matter what he said he was, if he didn't have his ID, they weren't going to let him through that. And even the, the British were all laughing. They didn't know what to do. They couldn't get through. Finally, the Russians got some other official up to the gate who certified that this was Winston Churchill and let him through. But it seemed kind of strange at the peak of the war for the Russians to keep Churchill out of Tehran. That only lasted about 15, 20 minutes. Then we got up to the gate, and all our Chinese guests had their adequate ID. We had no trouble. We got through the, that big purple cloth without any trouble. And the conference lasted for a few days. And it was an extremely significant conference with respect to Asia and the Indochina War. And I don't think people have considered that in the context of modern history. And what, what the decisions of Tehran had to do with later activities in Southeast Asia. Because one reason that the Chinese had gone to Tehran <clears throat> was to prevail upon Stalin to ask Mao Zedong to withhold attacks against Chiang Kai-shek so that Chiang Kai-shek could use all of his forces against the Japanese and help us get air bases that we needed for the B-29s in China so we could attack Japan directly from air bases in China it was a very important decision that they were being asked to to uh, get Churchill to make. And Tung did withhold his attack on Chiang Kai-shek. Now the, the Tehran conference, as far as the public and historians are concerned, was primarily a conference between Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin. And it's all a matter of record and doesn't bear repeating here. But there was an additional factor that historians have not dealt with, and that was that the Chinese attended the Tehran Conference also. And it's very important because decisions made at Tehran regarding China impacted very definitely years later upon the Indochina War and, and the conditions in Southeast Asia, and we'll pursue that. But what the problem was, was we were allied with the Soviets during World War II. And we were not allied, or Chiang Kai-shek was certainly not allied, with the Chinese Communists, which presented a rather fragmented situation when, you, when, the, when British and Americans tried to persuade Chiang Kai-shek to attack the Japanese and drive them into the Pacific, attack them east. He had a problem at his rear, his military rear, because the, every time he would move any troops from his rear, Mao Zedong would move his Communist armies against them, and Chiang Kai-shek was fighting in two directions. One direction against our common enemy, the Japanese, and the other direction against, uh, what could we say, our Soviet friends, our Soviet allies, and their allies, the, the communist Chinese. A bit complex. 
So what Roosevelt had worked out was he felt that if he could get the Chinese to talk with Stalin and have Stalin prevail upon Mao Zedong at least to withhold attack during the war against Japan, then he would free a considerable force of Chiang Kai-shek's so that he could use that force against the Japanese and gain bases in China that we would use then for the new B-29 bombers that were just coming into play to bomb against the homeland of Japan. Now, Roosevelt was a very thorough person. And just to give you a little idea of how he handled all this, when I got on board that uh, plane of mine, that C-57 that morning in Cairo, I found that there were two or three very large cartons in the plane that somebody had put there. And since we were just flying passengers, we were going to throw those cartons out. We figured they put them on the wrong plane. But a major who had come, a protocol officer who had come from Washington, told me we had to keep them on the plane. Well, that's okay with us. Shortly after we had taken off, I went back to see how my Chinese passengers were doing. They had broken open the carton. Inside were boxes of cornflakes, just simple boxes of cornflakes. No sugar and cream, no bowls and spoons, just cornflakes. Roosevelt knew that the Chinese loved cornflakes and that they would eat the cornflakes like we eat popcorn. And every one of the Chinamen back in my plane had an open box of cornflakes and was eating cornflakes as we flew along. Now, how did Roosevelt know that? How had it happened that he had thought of this whole event so meticulously that he even ordered the cornflakes to be on board? Well, that's one of those events that makes a diplomatic meeting a success and the success at Tehran at that time enabled Chiang Kai-shek to move his troops and for us to then put much more pressure on the Japanese and to win the war. It, 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 it did a lot of things because in making the agreement with Stalin that we would invade Europe at Normandy, Stalin played his cards close. He talked to Mao Zedong. There's plenty of evidence about that. And exactly one week after we invaded Normandy, on the beaches of Normandy, Mao Zedong publicly allied himself with Chang as Chang moved against the Japanese. In other words, they timed it so that we land on the beach and then they'll announce the agreement uh, with Mao Zedong. Pretty clever operation. Now, in that period of time, Chiang Kai-shek, who certainly was not uh, any favorite of the communist Chinese or any other communists, also had as a guest in his country, Ho Chi Minh, who was, in his eyes, a Vietnamese nationalist whose greatest aim in life was to get the colonialism, the French colonialism uh, period, ended in Vietnam. And Chang was in, in favor of that, as were the American generals, General Stilwell and all, who were with Chang, General Chenault. So that the American generals, our OSS, and Chiang Kai-shek supported Ho Chi Minh when, even before the end of the war, they sent Ho Chi Minh down into Indochina and uh, started his action against renegade Japanese there and greatly influenced his activities in Vietnam, coalesced his people there in armed troops that we armed, all as a result of what started in Tehran. Rather interesting thing, and of course we'll talk about that later, but uh, I wanted to emphasize that because some people have tried to prevail upon the fact that there were no Chinese 
during the Tehran conference. I was the pilot of the plane that flew them there, and I, and I know now there are books printed, even by the government printing office, that state that Chiang Kai-shek was in Tehran with Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin. Now, you see, this VIP pilot business that I got into, uh, I had no idea that I'd be in that kind of work. It was rather, rather interesting work. I flew many other uh, people like that. I flew the Turkish ambassador who had been at the Bretton Woods Conference here in um, New Hampshire during the war back to Turkey. And a very interesting man talked to me about what had been going on at Bretton Woods as we flew north. I had him sit up in the co-pilot seat. <laughs> I don't think he'd ever done much flying. We were, we were flying in an area where there were uh, little puffy white clouds up in the sky and, and I didn't try to avoid them. I just fly through them. Well, I noticed the first time I approached a cloud at, at the DC-3, no, no, at 57, at C-57 speed, about 160 miles an hour, he tried to hide under the seat because he thought it was going to be a crash. Then after that, he wanted me to go hunt clouds. He wanted to fly through a lot of them. You know, you find uh, interesting little things happen in these details. As, as we approached Turkey, uh, he, he uh, made a statement that's rather interesting. He said, fly over by those mountains. There's some beautiful mountains at the uh, south of Turkey, near Adna. And we went over there, and he said, see that lake? And I looked down, and he said, that's not a lake. That's oil. He said, Turkey has an enormous amount of oil. He said, but we have made it national policy that we will not export oil. Oil is Turkey's. It's for us, and we will consume our own oil. Now, that was in 1944. I have not heard of any commercial development of Turkish oil since then. I think what he said was a true fact and that it still is their policy. But we looked down and saw plenty. Of course, there was Turkish oil before World War II. They were in the oil market then. Um, this flying into Turkey led to one or two other incidents which were rather interesting. I was called up there another day. I had a passport. See, Turkey was neutral also. But I didn't have to paint my plane to go into Turkey because they were very meticulous. If they let my airplane in, they would let a German airplane in. So I got called to fly up to Ankara, Turkey one day, and uh, uh, as I approached the airport in Ankara, I saw another airplane. And as I circled to land, I saw the other fellow circle to land. I parked my plane on the ramp, and he parked his. I was right beside a German airplane. They picked us up in the same bus. Here, my American crew and the German crew, and we went into the same hotel in town. That's how neutral the Turks were. They kept us on an even keel. My visit there was rather interesting because the next morning, they got me up early, got the plane ready, and they rushed out to the field with four or five British soldiers. And I had been asked to bring a nurse up there, by the way, and I didn't know why that was. But then I realized that we saw those soldiers. These were the British commandos who had blown up the guns at Navarone, one of the great undercover incidents of World War II. These British commandos, acting as native fishermen, had started somewhere around Latakia in the Mediterranean, sailed up into the Bosphorus, to the Greek side of the Bosphorus, to where these huge guns were based at Navarone, they overlooked the Bosphorus and stopped any, any movement of shipping uh, through there up to the Black Sea, or out of the Black Sea. And these five men, I think it was five, had blown up those guns. Well, on their way in, unfortunately, one of the men had stepped on a landmine on the beach. 
And uh, the other fellows told me that they begged him to leave him behind. Just he tried to do the best he could, but he'd been badly wounded. His one, one leg was shattered. But they wouldn't. They dragged him up to the guns. After the guns, they escaped. They put him in the boat and went across to Turkey. And they escaped with him. And when we got to him, his leg was very bad. Gangrene had set in. And the nurse worked with him all the way back. And we took him to a big British army hospital that was in uh, Palestine. But um, this kind of an interesting incident to think the damage that those five men had, wow. had done in their own uh, operation. Uh, another visit to Turkey was uh, equally significant because we were asked to go to a small air base uh, near the Syrian city of Aleppo. And from there, we went up north to an open field. There was no air base. And we were asked to decide whether or not we could operate aircraft out of that field because it was near the railroad track. And there's a railroad track that comes down from Turkey on its way across easterly and for a few miles drops a few miles below the Turkish-Syrian border. So the track is actually running in Syria at that time when the train is running in Syria. So I, I agreed that we could use that as an airbase, and I asked, you know, how many planes they wanted, what we were supposed to do. And they said, well, we're going to have a train come down here in a few days with about 750 men who are Ameri former prisoners of war as the German army was retreating out of the Balkans and the Russian army was coming in. There was a little hiatus there in which our OSS officials were able to liberate uh, many of the American prisoners who had been shot down over the Balkans during the war. Well. Um, I figured out for 750 men, I'd need about 30 airplanes. We could get 30 airplanes up there, and we agreed to be there. So we got orders about three days later to be there, and we took off from Cairo. I had unloaded every plane coming into Cairo for a while until I got 30 extra planes, and we flew up there and picked up these men, and as soon as we filled each plane, we flew them out. Well, I had taken my uh, commander's airplane. Who was that? Uh, my commander was... Uh, a Colonel Smith, R.J. Smith. Uh, R.J. Smith had been a vice president of Braniff Airline and was serving in his reserve commission as a colonel, later general, as the commanding officer of the Cairo uh, John B. Payne Air Base. And uh, his plane had comfortable seats and we had some cots in there and we picked up the men who had been injured. Injuries to the prisoners mostly were uh, the result of a very brutal action by the, by the uh, native Balkans to keep the prisoners from running away they cut a leg off and here we had these one-legged airmen who had had no injuries other than the fact they cut their leg off at the knee and we had put them in the we carried them into the seats of the plane and and amazingly I had a whole plane for probably 30 35 men that we had the one man that had both legs cut off just unfortunate type thing they were in uh, fairly good health but it's a pretty brutal way to keep people prisoners and certainly not in accordance with the agreements on the treatment of prisoners of war. But as you had also said in the past, those people had done that because of their anger at the people, these bombers, these yes. people who had yes. bombed the, them. Uh, uh, our bombing attacks on the oil fields at Ploesti in Romania and all were, were of course uh, devastating attacks, but we had to limit the supply of oil to the Germans as a reason for it, huh. even though we were not specifically at war with uh, some of the people there, the Romanians, the Bulgarians, and so on. The interesting thing about that was that once we got in the air, I realized that some of my passengers were not these American pilots. They were Bal they were men from the Balkans. In fact, they were. We were talking, and uh, 
and then later on learned that they were people who had been selected by the OSS in the Balkans for a special evacuation before the Soviet armies arrived because if they were not exactly Nazis, they had been pro-Nazi, and for some reason our own OSS wanted to get them out of there. This puzzled us a little bit, but we weren't in the political business, so we didn't ask too many questions, but I've done a lot of thinking since those, especially since the publication of this book, Blowback, and others, that shows that we ex we exfiltrated thousands of ex-Nazis out of Germany for various reasons after World War II. How did you find out at the time that these people were, in fact, uh, not uh, allies? They were not... Well, one of two things that I have never written about or really never spoken about before today is uh, <clears throat> these men very freely uh, gave me an ID that, you know, I want to know how, how they, well, by what right they were on the plane. And I could tell from the IDs, one or two of which I have kept, still have. I have their names and things like that. And uh, then I learned from later associations in my career that this group, some of them, did contain men who had been selected by Frank Wisner of the uh, OSS, who he was the chief in Budapest, and in, I should say, Bucharest, in Bucharest. And uh, they had come out and that they were uh, selected for various reasons. And uh, again, I had no way of knowing. They were just my passengers. Uh, but it's an interesting little incident because, as we all know, um, even before the end of World War II, uh, Alan Dulles, who was in Geneva, was dealing with General Galen and others for, for an early surrender of the generals uh, as they revolted against uh, Hitler at the end of the war. So this was uh, a lead by maybe, uh, this was August of 44, this was a lead of eight or nine months before the end of the war, in which we were already negotiating with Germans for the surrender of the war and for their own escape from, uh, from Soviets who were coming in. A very interesting prelude to things that were coming. Uh, a third episode with this flying into Turkey is also uh, rather interesting. Um, it's hard to contemplate how, during a world war, when, a force, when millions of forces are against each other, there can be activities through the lines. And our Army Counterintelligence Corps learned that the Germans were smuggling enormous amounts of gold from Germany through the Balkans into Turkey. And oddly enough, I mean oddly to me, just a Joe Pilot flying around, through American facilities to Argentina. Well, immediately, Army CIC realized that the only going concern that they could have been operating with would be the Air Transport Command. Well, immediately, Army CIC realized that the only going concern that they could have been operating with would be the Air Transport Command, because no one else flew with commercial airlines wanting business. So they began to watch the Air Transport Command very closely, and they realized that one or two members, or at least one or two, made trips that didn't seem to have anything to do with their normal business, and that these trips included the proximity to Turkey. So they called me in one day because I had a Turkish passport. I was the only pilot that had a regular Turkish passport. My crew was selected for each flight. They didn't need a passport because I had one, at least for wartime, that suffice. But I could go to Turkey without raising eyebrows, without having somebody observe it. So they wanted me to go to Adna, Turkey, go to certain restaurants and look to see if I saw any people that weren't Turks, you know, or uh, Germans or whatever, Americans, just 
keep an eye on what was going on while I was having dinner and that kind of thing. A very simple requirement, but it meant somebody had to go there to observe what was going on. And sure enough, I did see some people that didn't look as though they were our military or theirs or had any real business in Turkey. And I told these people in Cairo, and oh, a month later, the same Colonel Crager, whom I worked with so much, called me one day and said, uh, I want you to meet me at Shepherd's Hotel. So I went down there in the afternoon and we sat on the, the veranda, the marvelous old Shepherd's Hotel. Uh, unfortunately, it was destroyed in uh, some riots later on, but it was just a grand old hotel. And, and uh, during World War II, it was quite the social meeting place for the coming and going of the armies traveling through Cairo. I met him there and he said, I want you to stay here with me and we'll, we'll just sit out on the veranda and watch what goes on. He said, I expect that a taxi cab, or maybe two, will pull up and certain people will get out of the cab. And if by any chance you see uh, someone you saw in Turkey, uh, just nod your head. He said, on the veranda there are a number of CIC people and they'll do the rest. All you have to do is just nod your head. So um, I sat there and we sipped a drink for a while and watched the crowds and, and sure enough up came a taxi and out of the cab popped an American in uniform, but he was a man I had seen in Adonai, not in my head, and immediately uh, about 10 CIC men got up, surrounded him, and off he went. I never saw him again, at least for a while. Interestingly, and he was tried as being uh, uh, working with the Germans in this, and they broke the whole gold smuggling ring by trying him and finding out who the other people were, and really it was quite a, the, the CIC did a magnificent job, they ended it. But what interested me was that the man that they captured was a very famous Hollywood movie actor named Bruce Campbell, a very close friend of Errol Flynn's, and you know the many allegations that Errol Flynn was closely uh, connected with Nazis and so on. I assume Cabot must have been because he was in the gold smuggling ring. Cabot's regular base for us, he was the Air Transport Command Operation Officer in Tunis. He was first lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force, and he was running the our end of the gold smuggling ring. He'd see that the gold got to Brazil labeled as uh, spare parts or things like that. And then from Brazil it would get down to Argentina by other devices. But it was it was an interesting little interlude uh, in the wartime. <coughs> so VIP flying opened doors to people and to incidents that as just an ordinary transport pilot I never would have even conceived of. And I didn't realize it, but apparently some of this is kept on a record because when they want somebody to do things somewhat similar to that later, rather than train a person, they'll use one that's already had the training and it limits the knowledge of these things down to a few people. And things like this occurred again. But I had been in uh, Africa then for 19 months. I'd been up in the Soviet Union. Uh, we had interesting flights into the Soviet Union at the same time um, before I came back, we went up there uh, at one of the conferences, it was agreed that we could do shuttle bombing. Bombers would take off from England, go deep over Germany, and then rather than return back across the length of Germany, they would just continue a few more miles into Russia and land there. And then fly sort of around the battle areas into Italy and then from Italy back to England and they figured there would be uh, much less loss of bombers if they could run shuttle bombing. 
Well, they did that without figuring that the Soviets were not as uh, operationally efficient against uh, aerial attack as, as uh, we thought they were. And the Germans followed our bombers and saw that they had gone into a place called Poltava and Mergorod and Pyrgorod and came over that same night and destroyed almost every single B-17. I think there were 77 destroyed out of 80 bombers. Wow. Terrific loss of planes. We didn't have much loss of life. The people had been uh, moved to some other place. And uh, we got a call in Cairo again to come up immediately and be ready to evacuate over 700 men. So the old deal again, get 30 or 40 planes together and off we go. Well, from Cairo, we took, I think, about 40 airplanes to Tehran and then flew all the way from Tehran up over the Caspian Sea across the Ukraine to Rostov. And from Rostov, we used a railroad track for navigation up to Poltava or Mirgorod and landed. We flew supplies up, but then we flew these American crewmen back out. So we were operating there for a while until we got them all out. And from my base in Cairo, where my nominal job was chief pilot, I left quite a few air crews up there because we opened up regular transport runs into the Soviet Union. Our, our relationship with the Soviets was very, very close. We were treated uh, very hospitably. One thing we noticed was that uh, there were no, you might say, combat age Russians in the whole area. There were young folks there. In fact, the perimeter guard at the airbase we stayed at up there, which was nothing but a field and no construction on it at all, just a field, were uh, 13, 14-year-old girls with armed with automatic weapons. And uh, you never saw any 20-year-old, 30-year, 40-year-old people, men or women. They were all in the battlefront. And from Mirgorod, you could hear the guns. It was only that far over toward Kiev where the fighting was going on. So that the, the Soviets were... I saw much of the war, Italy and Europe and Japan, I never saw devastation to equal of what you saw in the Soviet Union. The, the, the city of Rostov was just rubble. It had been laid waste for so long that the seedlings of trees were growing up in the cellars and in the streets and the city was going back to being a forest. It was just unbelievable to see things like that. I saw Hiroshima. Now Hiroshima was horrible, of course, but you could see that it was a temporary act and it had happened only a couple of weeks before we saw it. Rostov had laid bare for years, you know, while the Battle of Stalingrad was going on and all. So the Soviet experience was, um, was very interesting. Uh, I've been asked, <coughs> they had, we had Russian maps, but as you may have read, the Russians don't make accurate maps of their country on purpose. At least that was the, what they used to do. And we knew our maps weren't good, but our Air Force had one set of maps that was pretty good. They were the maps that had been used by the crew that flew Wendell Wilkie when he made the big round-the-world trip in about 1940. And uh, they had those maps in Tehran. And I was briefed on the flight from Wilkie's maps, but they wouldn't let me take them. And But they gave me copies, and they said, now as you fly, mark in as many things as you can to try to, you know, we get a little more accurate mapping situation. Uh, and we, we needed it badly because we had no alternatives up there. If we had bad weather or something, we had to go to the bases we sent to. There were no uh, electronic aids to land by and that kind of thing. So they gave me a camera. Well, I, this kind of flight, I didn't know whether I should be taking a camera because although the Soviets were allies, uh, they might not appreciate that. But anyway, I took the camera and took an awful lot of pictures for them. But it shows that even in July of 1944, 
and we were strongly allied with the Soviets, there was always this idea that we needed to know a little bit more and that what they were telling us wasn't exactly accurate. It's kind of interesting to see what things like that meant from the peak of the war period uh, to modern times. You see, it has a little implication about things to come when you see little bits of it like that as, as being asked to take a camera on that trip. I don't think any of our airplanes took cameras, just mine. Well, after 19 months of that rather interesting work, I was uh, transferred back to the States, uh, checked out in four-engine aircraft for ocean flying, and in January of 45, I began flying the Pacific <clears throat> and doing the same work, heavy transport work. In those days, we would fly by way of Hawaii and uh, Kwajalein or Tarawa to New Guinea, from New Guinea to Biak Island over to Leyte. Leyte had just been invaded in the Philippines and uh, a place called Tacloban. And uh, <clears throat> here we were close to combat. We'd be landing at air bases that were themselves under bomber attack almost every day. Or at uh, Tacloban, the airfield was simply a part of the beach. We hadn't been able to get inland at all and the fighting was going on in the hills just over the beach and we could hear the fighting there so we'd only stay on the ground for a short time. Uh, the day I arrived at uh, Tacloban for the first time we were just approaching the beach when we got a call to circle for a while. <clears throat> uh, aircraft carrier had been sunk or at least damaged and the aircraft carrier's aircraft all that they could get in the air were flying to Tacloban to land there and oh they came in like a swarm of bees and the base wasn't uh, it wasn't the kind of a base that could handle a lot of airplanes. And some of them uh, had trouble on a runway. They had flat tires or something. And they just took a bulldozer yeah. and pushed those planes into the ocean. And then they called me and said, okay, the, the strip is clear. <laughs> well, I, I'd seen quite a bit of warfare, but I had never seen this kind where when you're right up into the combat situation, anything goes. You know, you just do what you have to do. And here were these perfectly good fighter planes, except maybe for a flat tire, and they just push them in the ocean and then clear the base and you go in. Ah. That was our... And we most of our flying out of the Philippines was with um, wounded men. They had not been able to build hospitals, and we had to get them back to Hawaii to the big hospital. And We did a lot of flying in those days just for that purpose. Then we got into Manila, and uh, I think one thing about Manila that hasn't been emphasized enough in history was that that city was horribly destroyed by the approach of MacArthur's armies and the bombing, the artillery and the bombing. It was a, a terrible destruction in Manila. It was not an easy battle to recapture Manila. I think some people think that once we got into the Philippines, we, we retook the Philippines easily. Uh, that's not so. Uh, after that, I was on a flight to Okinawa, which the battle was still going on in Okinawa when we were there, or just ending. They were wrapping up the battle, and uh, we heard that the uh, we had heard that the atom bomb had been used uh, before, about a week before. We heard that the Japanese had surrendered. Well, of course, that's what we were all waiting for. This was August, or, uh, what would I say, August 28th, maybe, uh, that uh, that the Japanese had had quit. And uh, they held us there until they were able to uh, open an air base in Japan where we could fly in. And uh, I think the first, there was a typhoon, a, a terrible typhoon came up the coast and hit Okinawa very hard. In fact, I think it is still believed 
by meteorologists that the highest winds ever recorded were recorded on Okinawa that day. Well, I know we sat in our airplanes, 155 four-engine transport plane, all night long with the engines running as though we were flying so we could stay pointed into the wind but stay on the ground and, and uh, with all kinds of trash flying through the air and everything. Some of the planes were hit pretty hard. But I kept four engines running all night long, actually flying into the wind and staying on the ground. And in the morning, surprisingly, when we got up, all our planes had been turned 180 degrees around as the storm, you know, we had to follow the winds and the storm blew us around and we'd been facing, I think, to the south at night. We woke up, we were facing the north and an enormous storm, unbelievable. But the plane wasn't damaged, and the next day we flew up to um, to Tokyo. And uh, do you it, remember what day that was? That was on September second, nineteen forty-five, and uh, it's a memorable date because <clears throat> we approached in the aftermath of the storm. We didn't see anything of Japan as we approached, but just miraculously—well, not miraculously—I had a good navigator. I had a very good navigator. I saw through the top of the clouds the tip of Mount Fujiyama. Huh. Well, if you know one peak, uh, one, one fix clearly, you can make a letdown in the clouds. So we let down into Tokyo Bay, which is a large body of water. We knew it would be safe to let down. And <clears throat> what we saw there was a line of U.S. Navy ships and the battleship Missouri at the apex of the Navy group. And it was on that same date, September 2nd, 1945, that the Japanese signed the surrender before MacArthur and the other generals there in Tokyo Bay. Well, we circled over the, near the fleet. We wouldn't circle over them. On um, September 2nd, 1945, we left Okinawa after an enormous hurricane and uh, flew north to Tokyo over the storm, which meant we had to fly at about 14,000 feet. And we never saw any of the islands as we approached, but our navigator got us directly up there so that we looked down in the clouds, and right in the top of the clouds, we saw the top of Mount Fuji. And with that as a fix, we let down through the clouds. We had no electronic aids, but of course, Mount Fuji was a good fix, <laughs> into Tokyo Bay. And we broke out of the clouds at about 1,100 feet in heavy rain. And there, almost right under us, was the U.S. Navy uh, anchored almost in a big crescent of ships with the battleship Missouri as a centerpiece. And on September 2nd, the same day we made this first flight into Japan, the same day that the Japanese surrendered on the Missouri uh, for General MacArthur. And we went up a small river uh, that we followed to an airbase called Atsugi and landed there. And we found out after we had landed that out of about 50 airplanes that had taken off that morning, only three of us got there because the weather was severe. It was just the luck that we had of seeing that little tip of Fuji that made it possible for us to get in. But it turned the tables on us because here we were, we were the second plane. There was one plane there and shortly after we went in, a third one came. And Atsugi was surrounded by several hundred thousand Japanese. And we thought, you know, uh, the surrender sign today, we were in a deathly war only a few days before. We'd hit them with atom bombs. You know, what's our reception going to be? And here we're just in an unarmed transport plane. <clears throat> our cargo, interestingly enough, uh, was 44 Marines. And the other planes had equal number, but with only three planes, we had about 130 Marines. 
because they were going to become the elite guard for MacArthur's headquarters, as he set up headquarters in Tokyo. So uh, with 140 Marines, I don't know how long we could have lasted. But you know, the Japanese had been told by the emperor that the war was over. They made no hostile moves. In fact, they came forward and by hand offloaded our airplane. We had three jeeps on that plane. And by standing on the flatbed of a truck, they lifted the jeep from the plane onto the truck and lifted the jeep onto the ground. And these were our enemies a week ago. It was It's, it's unbelievable, you know, to think of how wartime emotions can shift immediately. And of course, we need to think more of that because our wartime alliance with the Soviet Union ended the same way. While we, we while the hostile uh, battles against the Germans and the Japanese ended, they became our friends immediately. And with the Russians, they became our enemies. It's a very strange thing. I don't think that historians have dwelt properly with the enormous differences that took place uh, even before the end of World War I was going to say at the end of World War II, even before the end of World War II, if I could just recap a few months. The Germans surrendered on May 8th, I believe, 1945. Before their surrender, the German foreign minister, Count Schwerin von Krosig, made the Iron Curtain speech. Not Winston Churchill. He did. You can read it in the London Times of about well, in May of 1945, he stated that the Russians were going to lower a curtain over Eastern Europe. Churchill read that and was impressed by it. He had yet to meet Truman officially. Truman had just become president after the death of Roosevelt. He wrote Truman a letter in which he spoke about this iron curtain being dropped over Eastern Europe. Truman was fascinated with the letter, invited Churchill later, uh, 1946, I believe, to come to the States, and it resulted in the famous Iron Curtain speech in this um, some college in Missouri. Yes, but Churchill did not originate the Iron Curtain concept. The Germans did. And the Germans that did were the ones who were in contact with our OSS, who had been led to believe that there would be life after war if they allied themselves again with the Americans. You see, even the Iron Curtain speech had its origins in the war instead of after the war. These are interesting things when you think back at that. And uh, I couldn't help but think as we rolled this airplane on at Sugi Air Base in front of the hundreds of thousands of Japanese that uh, here were our enemies and immediately they were our friends. They came over to help us unload the plane and they've been our friends ever since. I've lived in Japan for years since then and never was uh, a victim of any kind of unfriendly act in Japan under any circumstances over the years. And incidentally, Atsugi uh, became the Japanese and Far Eastern headquarters for our CIA uh, in later years and is a very active base for that purpose. So that a lot of these things that we date September 2nd, 1945, uh, need to be carefully analyzed for their impact upon uh, things that have happened since then, the Cold War and all that sort of thing. But it also had another important thing, because on the day we left Okinawa to go to Japan, I noticed that our Navy was loading ships in Naha Harbor at Okinawa. 
And uh, when I came back from the flight, we were living very close to the harbor. I went down the harbor and happened to run into a Navy captain who was harbor master. You came back and from the flight on the same day? It was a short flight. We couldn't stay. There was no place to stay. In fact, we couldn't even get fuel. We had to carry enough fuel up to get back. That causes quite a few trouble. We lost quite a few planes that way. They, they, they didn't have enough fuel to get back. <laughs> and we, we didn't have enough experience with, the, with that operation, but that ended pretty soon. But uh, we got back that day, and the next day, I went down to the harbor and, and met the harbor master, and I asked him, I said, what, you, you're, see, Okinawa had been absolutely loaded with supplies for the invasion of Japan. We figured 500,000 men would invade Japan, and we had loaded what we call a 500,000 man pack. That's enough equipment, medicine, radios, everything, for 500 men for a certain fixed period of time. I wish I could tell you, but it's probably a month or two months, something like that. 500,000 men. 500,000 man pack of supplies had been stacked up there on Okinawa. Now, of course, that wasn't all that would go in for the invasion because ships that had been preloaded for the invasion would also come in. But anyway, on Okinawa, there was an enormous amount of equipment. And all of a sudden, it was being reloaded on trucks, put back on transport ships, and sailing out to sea. <clears throat> so the first thing I asked the commander, I said, well, um, it's all going back to the United States. He says, no, they don't want any of that back. He said, anything that isn't going to be used is going to be junked. He said, this is going to Hanoi in Indochina. And he said, actually, about half. He said, about 145,000 man pack is going into China. Well, at that time, that didn't have the same impact on me that it would have today. I've since learned that when it got to Hanoi, or to the harbor of Haiphong, it was turned over to the representative of Ho Chi Minh. And we gave these, this equipment to Ho Chi Minh, who was with our own army, with General Gallagher, the U.S. Army, and we were equipping his people so that they could help us round up renegade Japanese, and, and that, um, th that this would be their way of arming and putting together their original army in North Vietnam. Now, this was September 2nd, 1945. Also on that date, by another coincidence, that's the day that Ho Chi Minh, with the American Army General Gallagher beside him and OSS representatives there, read the Declaration of Independence of Viet Minh. He established the national independence of that country on that same date that the Japanese signed the surrender. So it's a historic date because it marks the, the beginning of our entry uh, on the ground in the Vietnamese affairs, which lasted from 45 until 75. And most historians don't use that 20-year that period from 45 to 65, when our Marines finally landed on the shores of Vietnam. They forget that we were there for 20 years before that. And we'll say more about that as we go along, but that's an important date. We went into Japan uh, three or four times after that, generally picking up American prisoners of war who had been very quickly released by the Japanese, and we got them all out of there. And on one of those flights, I flew along the coast of Japan and flew right over Hiroshima. And uh, having seen many cities that have been devastated by the war, Tokyo really worse than any of them, uh, Hiroshima was quite... Um, an unusual sight because you could see that whatever had happened to Hiroshima happened instantly. All of the destruction was in one direction. You know, the wind blew one way, the, the bomb burst and boom, the whole city just burst outwards like that. 
and uh, much of it looked like powder gray. It was just uh, everything burned and broke, and uh, steel buildings were bent over. Uh, I flew very low over the area and had a good look at it. Uh, something that uh, we had to learn a lot about because we, we, a lot of people have no concept really of what this thing called an atom bomb or hydrogen bomb can do to target and wiped it out. <coughs> While I was on Okinawa, <coughs> and we were continuing this post-war cleanup of our prisoners and people that needed medical care and all that, I received orders to transfer me back to the States and to go to Yale University to inaugurate the Air Force's ROTC program. This would have been in September? This was in September 45. <coughs> and uh, we, um, the Air Force had not had ROTC before the war. Uh, part of the Army uh, then, and, and we, Army ROTC covered Air Force and everything else, so we hadn't had distinct ROTC. But the decision had been made <coughs> to establish an Air Force ROTC. So we transferred from San Francisco, where we were living then, to New Haven. And uh, I taught there through the scholastic years of 46, 47, and 48. Those were very interesting years in the campuses, and very interesting years for an ROTC program. Uh, for example, I would have, say, 35 students enrolled in the course, and I might have 200 auditing the course. They were very, very interested <coughs> in military in those days. They were very interested in what you might call post-war studies of World War II by all of us that were teaching were, there were three of us with our PC program, were all veterans of the war, and we could speak firsthand. There was a Navy program there and an Army program, so ROTC was a pretty strong course. But it amazed me that the uh, the student interest, it was, it was deep, and of course, uh, I was there when uh, President Bush was a student there. I remember William Buckley as the editor of the Yale Daily News. In fact, I wrote for him several times, and many of the other people of that era now have become rather prominent people in, uh, in, the, in the United States. Well, <clears throat> when you start a course like that, you have no antecedent. We, we didn't even have offices. Our offices at first were in a corridor. But you don't have books. You have textbooks. You don't have the lesson guides. So we were authorized by the Air Force to teach certain subjects. They gave us a list of that, like aeronautics, obviously, meteorology, comptrollership, which the Air Force was very strong in. It was a new subject in military in those days. And personnel and logistics, the ob obvious. Uh, then there was a very interesting course called the Evolution of Warfare. That went way back to throwing stones and using clubs and on up to jet planes and atom bombs. And that's the course where the crowd of students used to come to. Well, after three years of that work, I was asked to transfer to New York City <coughs> and write textbooks because we had to get textbooks on other campuses. And I wrote the first textbook for the Air Force on the subject of aeronautics, and I wrote a major portion of another textbook on the subject of munitions that was the text on missiles and rockets and guided missiles and this whole new thing that was coming in after World War II of rockets and missiles. It was a very interesting uh, thing to be asked to do because we had very little reference material on a subject and my orders authorized me to visit anyone anywhere in the United States, like at a factory or at a university or any other place, 
that knew anything about rockets and missiles to write the book. So I visited uh, Werner von Braun, uh, Walter Dornberger, and the other big names in the rocket business because uh, there was no one else to see. What was your impression of someone like von Braun, personal impression? Um, an, odd, an odd individual. And in those days, he seemed absolutely dedicated to rocketry. That was everything, you know, rockets. He used to talk about building a rocket that would go to the moon, which, of course, he did. And I don't think we can say that anyone else had as dominant a part in sending a rocket to the moon as he did. But even in those days, he would tell me how he was going to do it. And I know from my inexperienced view of things that I used to wonder how he meant to do it, because he said he would fire a rocket to the moon, and then it would orbit the moon, and then another rocket would drop down to the moon, a lander. That's exactly what they did. But I used to think back at that. In fact, I wrote about it. I had to write about how it was going to work. And I would have a little trouble visualizing what this man could plan. He was, he was an absolutely dedicated genius. Mm. I had no way or reason to discuss any of his politics, and I didn't, know, didn't even think about that. I was so busy uh, picking up ideas from him. And uh, I remember another thing is I asked him about the benefits of the propulsion systems, whether solid propellants or liquid propellants were preferred. And as far as he was concerned, liquid propellant was the only thing. Mm -hmm. And his argument for that was that, first of all, there was much more specific impulse, much more rocket power in the liquid propellant chemi chemicals, the fuels, than there are in solid propellant chemicals. And I thought of that when we lost this uh, shuttle uh, rocket off Florida because the trouble was with the solid propellant component and I still believe they should not be using the solid propellant for that kind of flight they use them for smaller ones but not for that kind of thing because the liquid propellant much better and um, I don't know whether you recall or not but the rocket that went to the moon the Apollo ship those were all liquid propellants designed for von Braun and all the Soviet flights are with, with liquid propellant mm. but uh, on subjects like that you couldn't have talked to a more competent, more able man than von Braun, and that was the impression I had. He was, for his years, he was a very youngish man, he yeah. was vigorous, young. Uh, of course, his English was heavily coated with a German accent, but he was, I could understand what he said. On the other hand, Dr. Dornberger, yeah. who had been von Braun's mentor at Pinamunda. And his military superior. And his, you know, his, and his superior was a completely different person. You had to draw him out a little to get him to talk. He was more the manager, he was more the operator, and, and he was working for a private corporation than the Bell Aircraft Company in Buffalo. Uh, he's a very impressive individual. Uh, for the purposes of my book, I had no reason to talk with him at much length. I saw right away that he was just going to talk administrative things and I didn't need that I wanted to write about the technical side yeah. so I don't have <clears throat> a, a very uh, distinct impression of him as I do of him Braun uh, they're both interesting and they were both uh, you might say um, uh, removed from Germany under this program of bringing German scientists and specialists and they're probably two of the most famous that were brought out I didn't realize that was 1949 that in 1955 I would be responsible for flying many of those flights out of Germany, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. Um, after I completed these textbooks uh, and some of the 
lesson guide material and all that we needed. The uh, Korean War broke out in June of 1950. My military base at the time, although I was working in New York, was at the Mitchell Field on Long Island in the headquarters of the um, Air Force's Continental Air Command. And <clears throat> a decision had been made to create a new Air Defense Command. And for reasons that aren't real clear to me, I was one of five officers selected to go to Colorado Springs and initiate that new command. It was a very interesting thing because we were developing radars that could uh, really cover the North American continent, and that gave us the capability to track any oncoming aircraft and later on air missiles. And we had developed interceptor fighter aircraft that were capable of handling any bombers that might come in. So we visualized the creation of an adequate defense system at that time, 1950. As rockets and missiles came in, uh, things had to change appreciably. And effectively today, we do not have an air defense system. We, we just talk about it, but we don't have one. But we thought we could build a good one in those days. And I stayed with the Air Defense Command. I was director of personnel planning for this command of 77,000 people. And uh, <clears throat> we were the first ones in our office to use computers in such a thing as, as personnel records and all that sort of thing. And, and um, it was a very interesting thing. We, we, uh, you know, we hadn't had computers. Everything was done typewriters and paper and pencil. And we were able to keep the records of, of 77,000 people up to date in real time on computers. Of course, they were the old style computers. I remember the biggest problem we had was getting rid of the excess heat generated by all these computers. But they did a good job, and we learned how to use them. This was for 77,000 government uh, yeah. Air Force? Air Force military people. And uh, in we, we handled all their records, and actually, uh, it, it became a very important thing because we could order full-size units to Korea, to the Korean War, without any trouble at all because we had all the data right there in the computer. And it had never been done before. And it was, a, it was very, and immediately, of course, it spread throughout the entire military system. But I, I believe we had the first office that did that. And that was in Colorado Springs? Colorado Springs in 1950, okay. 51. Then in 50... At the end of '51, I was uh, I was sent to several nuclear schools. Uh, a lot of us in the military had absolutely no idea <clears throat> of handling nuclear weapons, uh, the effect of nuclear weapons, uh, what they were, and all that sort of thing. Uh, it was no intention to make us nuclear physicists. But what they were trying to do is teach us something about the weapons. And uh, the military was going through a very difficult period at that time because a few military people knew the enormous devastation power of hydrogen bombs, just, uh, or not hydrogen bomb, but just the atom bomb, hydrogen bomb came a little later. And it was difficult tactically to work that into a military uh, plan because you get your forces lined up as we did in Germany and start moving them and you get hit by nuclear weapons and your forces are all knocked to pieces plus the fact that there is this residual radioactivity which is even worse than the explosion. So I went to three different nuclear schools and was very glad I did because I learned early in the business to have enormous respect for their power and what they could do and, and really what they could not do. 
and I'm still convinced that what they cannot do is be used in warfare. They cannot use successfully. Yeah, they could use, be used for what you might call in warfare mass suicide, you know, world suicide, but not for victory in a war. And that's why they weren't using Korea and in Vietnam. We didn't think of it that way in those days, but that's what happened. And uh, from those schools, I was then sent to the Air Command and Staff School at uh, Montgomery, Alabama. <clears throat> This was a six-month course, and it was a very interesting course, and it was the, because I had been doing writing for the uh, ROTC textbooks, I was asked to do some writing there, and uh, I actually wrote the first statement of air power and its effectiveness for the new Air Force, and it was a, just a four-page paper, but it was reproduced in hundreds of thousands of copies, so people could get an idea of what this new uh, nuclear age air power was all about. And it interested me an awful lot, and I think it interested everybody in the Air Force. That was in 1952. That was in the spring of 52. Uh, I received orders from the Air Command Staff School to uh, go to Korea. <clears throat> it was at the height of the Korean War. And uh, I left my family in Montgomery. And when I arrived in Tokyo, as I stepped off the plane, um, Colonel was there at the foot of the stairs and asked if I was Colonel Prouty. I said, yes. He said, your orders have been changed. You're going to stay at this base. So that was the Haneda, Tokyo International Airport. Well, they, the plane was going through to Korea. They had to find my baggage and unload it. And I went in to see the commanding officer of the base, and he said, because of your background experience, primarily the experience I had at Cairo in the Air Transport Command and all that. He said, we just had a man have a heart attack who was managing Tokyo International Airport. See, this was the period of the occupation of Japan. So almost any major effort was actually run by Americans with Japanese in, you know, second position, backup positions. So before too long, I was the military manager of Tokyo International Airport, the third busiest airport in the world. And, uh, however, not as busy as Cairo was during the war, and it, it was not all that much of a surprise. But it was a very interesting period, and I enjoyed working with the Japanese who were planning, you know, to take over the field as soon as our occupation ended. And I got to know many of them in those days, and uh, worked with a lot of them who, who eventually formed Japanese Airlines, JAL, and uh, some of the others, manufacturers that were in the business. Uh, after about, um, and, and, and at all the time I was flying. I kept up my active heavy transport flying. And this brought me into uh, the, the Philippines, Manila, into Saigon, Bangkok, New Delhi, India, and even back to Saudi Arabia. I arrived in Saudi Arabia exactly 10 years to the date, uh, with it in the same month, that I had gone there with General Smith when I went to, to uh, visit the people from California Standard when we painted our airplane and went into Saudi Arabia back in 1943. And an interesting little thing, I arrived at Saudi Arabia, and here it was built up like a modern city, you know, with all this oil money and all the oil people. It, what a difference it was. When I was there, there was absolutely nothing. So I got out of the airplane, got cleared with all the paperwork of bringing a plane and passengers in there, and I went quickly to a telephone, opened up the telephone book, 
I looked for the name of the man that we met when we landed on that beach that day, or on the sand that day, when General Smith got out of the plane and shook his hand. His name was Floyd Oliver. He was a longtime engineering employee of California Standard and one of the founders of Aramco. You know, Aramco is the most profitable corporation ever made by man. And I found his name. So just for the fun of it, I dialed his telephone number. And some man at his house answered the phone and said, Mr. Oliger is very busy right now. It was in the evening, but he was having a big party at his house, official party. And he said, but may I ask your name? And I said, well, I'm Colonel Prouty. I said, I visited Mr. Oliger here in Dauron in October 1943. The man said, just a minute, please, Colonel. And in no time, on the phone, I heard, and he said, Prouty, what are you doing? Well, we had to get the, he remembered me. Of course, I remembered him. And we had quite a reunion there, but now I couldn't believe it, what had happened to the sands of Dharan and Saudi Arabia in 10 years. Huh. What we did out of Tokyo is we ran a regularly scheduled heavy transport run from Tokyo to Okinawa, to the Philippines, to Saigon, to Bangkok, to Calcutta, New Delhi, to Karachi, and then to, to Dharan. It was called the Embassy Run. We served the embassies back and forth through South Asia. And again, as I learned later, uh, a certain amount of that activity had to do with the CIA. So you see, again, we're in this little fringe area of uh, work that goes on all the time, beginning with the OSS and the CIC and the CIA and the rest of it. Um, in, uh, in 1953, probably about May or June, the commander of the heavy transport squadron at Tokyo was being rotated back to the States and they asked me to transfer from managing the airport to the squadron. We had turned the airport over to the Japanese. They now were operating the field. And I became squadron commander, responsible for flights every day to Korea, mostly for the evacuation of sick and wounded, uh, flights every day to Hawaii, some to San Francisco, and uh, flights two or three times a week to Manila and Saigon and that sort of thing. We were running up, and, and then the, the continuing the embassy run that went all the way to, da, to Saudi Arabia. When was that in 1953? That was from about, uh, oh, let's say June of 53. Okay. And <clears throat> I stayed in that job until um, December of 54. Okay. Um, it, it was very interesting in that period because although none of us out there realized it, we were gradually stepping up American influence in uh, Indochina. Uh, one of the first things we realized was a lot of C-119 heavy transports, we used to call flying boxcars, were operating under an airline that we knew as, uh, as a CAT, C-A-T airline with American pilots. And uh, they were delivering supplies to the French who were deeply involved in fighting uh, Ho Chi Minh's Viet Minh forces and especially in trying to extricate the French army out of uh, Dien Bien Phu. And the first American airplane and crew shot down in Indochina were shot down uh, trying to supply Dien Bien Phu at that time in 1954. <clears throat> Other flights that we were operating from Manila served the logistics back and forth between Manila and Saigon for the Saigon military mission, which we'll talk about later. And I met uh, uh, then Colonel Lansdale and uh, Bohannon and many of his people who were connected with that. 
And uh, in that long five and a half hour flight between Manila and Saigon, we spent many, many an hour talking about his activities in support of the election of President Magsaysay and the planned activities of his organization in uh, Vietnam, which at that time uh, was just beginning. The approvals for that took place in early 1954 when we were, we were still flying that run regularly. So some of these uh, practical, everyday working experiences in the Far East played a strong role in my work later in the Pentagon between 1955 and 1963. The, um, the rest of the transport flying was rather pedestrian. And, uh, we had a uh, very busy time. We all were doing an awful lot of flying at that period. At the end of 1954, I was uh, selected to attend the school that is run by the Joint Chiefs of Staff called the Armed Forces Staff College. That's in Norfolk, at the Norfolk Navy Base. Uh, that's a, a six-month school, an uh, excellent, excellent military course. And uh, I happened to be there for the first half of 1955. And one part of the curriculum is, uh, is quite outstanding for that period. One of the things that school did was to set up a NATO-type combat operation. They would divide the school into two forces. One would be red and one would be blue. And obviously the reds were the communists. So they were the ones that were attacking to the west. They were the ones that begin the, would initiate the attack. And those of us in the blue forces would defend against the attack, and, and it would be the typical NATO confrontation through Europe. And in the assignment of forces, <clears throat> very interesting how they do that. They assign each student a role like a commanding general, like Patton, like Bradley, like Montgomery, and, and you're in charge of what goes on through the area as though you were a regular commanding general. On um, September 2nd, 1945, we left Okinawa after an enormous hurricane and uh, flew north to Tokyo over the storm, which meant we had to fly at about 14,000 feet. And we never saw any of the islands as we approached, but our navigator got us directly up there so that we looked down in the clouds, and right in the top of the clouds, we saw the top of Mount Fuji. And with that as a fix, we let down through the clouds we had no electronic aids, but of course Mount Fuji was a good fix, into Tokyo Bay. And we broke out of the clouds at about 1,100 feet in heavy rain, and there almost right under us was the U.S. Navy uh, anchored almost in a big crescent of ships with the battleship Missouri as a centerpiece. And on September 2nd, the same day we made this first flight into Japan, the same day that the Japanese surrendered on the Missouri, uh, for General MacArthur. And we went up a small river uh, that we followed to an airbase called Atsugi okay. and landed there. And we found out after we had landed that out of about 50 airplanes that had taken off that morning, only three of us got there because the weather was severe. It was just the luck that we had of seeing that little tip of Fuji that made it possible for us to get in. But it turned the tables on us because here we were we were the second plane. There was one plane there, and shortly after we went in, a third one came. And Atsugi was surrounded by several hundred thousand Japanese. And we thought, you know, 
the surrender sign today. We were in a deathly war only a few days before. We'd hit them with atom bombs. You know, what's our reception going to be? And here we're just in an unarmed transport plane. <clears throat> our cargo, interestingly enough, uh, was 44 Marines. And the other planes had equal number, but with only three planes, we had about 130 Marines because they were going to become the elite guard for MacArthur's headquarters as he set up headquarters in Tokyo. So uh, with 140 Marines, I don't know how long we could have lasted. But you know, the Japanese had been told by the emperor that the war was over. They made no hostile moves. In fact, they came forward and by hand offloaded our airplane. We had three jeeps on that plane. And by standing on the flatbed of a truck, they lifted the jeep from the plane onto the truck and lifted the jeep onto the ground. And these were our enemies a week ago. It was, it's, it's unbelievable, you know, to think of how wartime emotions can shift immediately. And of course, we need to think more of that because our wartime alliance with the Soviet Union ended the same way. While, we, we, while the hostile uh, battles against the Germans and the Japanese ended, they became our friends immediately, and with the Russians, they became our enemies. It's a very strange thing. I don't think that historians have dwelt properly with the enormous differences that took place uh, even before the end of World War I was going to say at the end of World War II, even before the end of World War II, if I could just recap a few months. The Germans surrendered on May 8th, I believe, 1945. Before their surrender, the German foreign minister, Count Schwerin von Krosig, made the Iron Curtain speech. Not Winston Churchill. He did. You can read it in the London Times of about, well, in May of 1945. He stated that the Russians were going to lower a curtain over Eastern Europe. Churchill read that and was impressed by it. He had yet to meet Truman officially. Truman had just become president after the death of Roosevelt. He wrote Truman a letter in which he spoke about this iron curtain being dropped over Eastern Europe. Truman was fascinated with the letter, invited Churchill later, uh, 1946, I believe, to come to the States, and it resulted in the famous iron curtain speech in this um, some college in Missouri. But Churchill did not originate the Iron Curtain concept. The Germans did. And the Germans that did were the ones who were in contact with our OSS who had been led to believe that there would be life after war if they allied themselves again with the Americans. You see, even the Iron Curtain speech had its origins in the war instead of after the war. These are interesting things when you think back at that. And, uh, I couldn't help but think as we rolled this airplane on at Sugi Air Base in front of the hundreds of thousands of Japanese that uh, here were our enemies and immediately they were our friends. They came over to help us unload the plane and they've been our friends ever since. I've lived in Japan for years since then and never was uh, a victim of any kind of unfriendly act in Japan under any circumstances over the years. And incidentally at Sugi uh, became the Japanese and Far Eastern headquarters for our CIA uh, in later years and is a very active base for that purpose. So that a lot of these things that we date September 2nd, 1945, uh, need to be 
carefully analyzed for their impact upon uh, things that have happened since then, the Cold War and all that sort of thing. But it also had another important thing. Because on the day we left Okinawa to go to Japan, I noticed that our Navy was loading ships in Naha Harbor at Okinawa. And uh, when I came back from the flight, we were living very close to the harbor. I went down the harbor and happened to run into a Navy captain who was harbor master. You came back and from the flight on the same day? It was a short flight. We couldn't stay. There was no place to stay. In fact, we couldn't even get fuel. We had to carry enough fuel up to get back. That causes quite a few trouble. We lost quite a few planes that way. They, they, they didn't have enough fuel to get back. <laughs> and we, we didn't have enough experience with, the, with that operation, but that ended pretty soon. But uh, we got back that day, and the, the next day, I went down to the harbor and, and met the harbor master, and I asked him, I said, what, you, you're, see, Okinawa had been absolutely loaded with supplies for the invasion of Japan. We figured that 500,000 men would invade Japan, and we had loaded what we call a 500,000 man pack. That's enough equipment, medicine, radios, everything for 500 men for a certain fixed period of time. I wish I could tell you, but it's probably a month or two months, something like that. 500,000 men. 500,000 man pack of supplies had been stacked up there on Okinawa. Now, of course, that wasn't all that would go in for the invasion because ships that had been preloaded for the invasion would also come in. But anyway, on Okinawa, there was an enormous amount of equipment. And all of a sudden, it was being reloaded on trucks, put back on transport ships, and sailing out to sea. <clears throat> so the first thing I asked the commander, I said, well, um, it's all going back to the United States. He says, no, we don't want to hear that back. He said, anything that isn't going to be used is going to be junked. He said, this is going to Hanoi in Indochina. And he said, actually, about half. He said, about 145,000 man pack is going into China. Well, at that time, that didn't have the same impact on me that it would have today. I've since learned that uh, when it got to Hanoi, or to the harbor of Haiphong, it was turned over to the representative of Ho Chi Minh. And we gave these this equipment to Ho Chi Minh, who was with our own army, with General Gallagher, the U.S. Army, and we were equipping his people so that they could help us round up renegade Japanese, and, and that, um, th that this would be their way of arming and putting together their original army in North Vietnam. Now, this was September 2nd, 1945. Also on that date, by another coincidence, that's the day that Ho Chi Minh, with the American Army General Gallagher beside him and OSS representatives there, read the Declaration of Independence of Viet Minh. He established the national independence of that country on that same date that the Japanese signed the surrender. So it's a historic date because it marks the beginning of our entry uh, on the ground in the Vietnamese affairs, which lasted from 45 until 75. And most historians don't use that 20-year that period, from 45 to 65, when our Marines finally landed on the shores of Vietnam. They forget that we were there for 20 years before that. And we'll say more about that as we go along, but that's an important date. We went into Japan uh, three or four times after that, generally picking up American prisoners of war who had been very quickly released by the Japanese, and we got them all out of there. And on one of those flights, I flew along the coast of Japan and flew right over Hiroshima. And uh, 
having seen many cities have been devastated by the war, Tokyo really worse than any of them, uh, Hiroshima was quite um, an unusual sight because you could see that whatever had happened to Hiroshima happened instantly. All of the destruction was in one direction. You know, the wind blew one way. The, the bombs burst and boom, the whole city just burst outwards like that. And uh, much of it looked like powder gray. It was just uh, everything burned and broke and uh, steel buildings were bent over. Uh, I flew very low over the area and got a good look at it. Uh, something that uh, we had to learn a lot about because we, we a lot of people have no concept, really, of what this thing called an atom bomb or hydrogen bomb is going to do to and wiped it out. <coughs> While I was on Okinawa, and we were continuing this post-war cleanup of our prisoners and people that needed medical care and all that, I received orders to transfer me back to the States and to go to Yale University to inaugurate the Air Force's ROTC program. This would have been in September? This was in September 45. <coughs> and uh, we, um, the Air Force had not had ROTC before the war. Uh, part of the Army uh, then, and, and we Army ROTC covered Air Force and everything else, so we hadn't had distinct ROTC. But the decision had been made to establish an Air Force ROTC. So we transferred from San Francisco, where we were living then, to New Haven. And uh, I taught there through the scholastic years of 46, 47, and 48. Those were very interesting years in the campuses, and very interesting years for an ROTC program. Uh, for example, I would have, say, 35 students enrolled in the course and I might have 200 auditing the course. They were very, very interested <clears throat> in military in those days. They were very interested in what you might call post-war studies of World War II by all of us that were teaching. Were, there were three of us with our ROTC program. We're all veterans of the war, and we could speak firsthand. There was a Navy program there and an Army program, so our ROTC was a pretty strong course. But it amazed me that the uh, the student interest, it was, it was deep. And of course, uh, I was there when uh, President Bush was a student there. I remember William Buckley as the editor of the Yale Daily News. In fact, I wrote for him several times. And many of the other people of that era now have become rather prominent people in, uh, in, the, in the United States. Well, <clears throat> when you start a course like that, you have no antecedent. We, we didn't even have offices. Our offices at first were in a corridor. But you don't have books. You don't have textbooks. You don't have the lesson guides. So we were authorized by the Air Force to teach certain subjects. They gave us a list of that, like aeronautics, obviously, meteorology, comptrollership, which the Air Force was very strong in. It was a new subject in military in those days. And personnel and logistics, the ob obvious. Uh, then there was a very interesting course called the evolution of warfare that went way back to throwing stones and using clubs and on up to jet planes and atom bombs. And that's the course where the crowd of students used to come to. Well, after three years of that work, I was asked to transfer to New York City <coughs> and write textbooks because we had to get textbooks on other campuses. And I wrote the first textbook for the Air Force on the subject of aeronautics and I wrote a major portion of another textbook on the subject of munitions 
that was the Techstar missiles and rockets and guided missiles and this whole new thing that was coming in after World War II of rockets and missiles. It was a very interesting uh, thing to be asked to do because we had very little reference material on a subject and my orders authorized me to visit anyone anywhere in the United States like at a factory or at a university or any other place that knew anything about rockets and missiles to write the book. So I visited uh, Werner von Braun, uh, Walter Dornberger, and the other big names in the rocket business because uh, there was no one else to see. What was your impression of someone like von Braun, personal impression? Um, an, odd, an odd individual. And in those days, he seemed absolutely dedicated to rocketry. That was everything, you know, rockets. He used to talk about building a rocket that would go to the moon, which of course he did. And I don't think we can say that anyone else had as dominant a part in sending a rocket to the moon as he did. But even in those days, he would tell me how he was going to do it. And I know from my inexperienced view of things that I used to wonder how he meant to do it, because he said he would fire a rocket to the moon, and then it would orbit the moon, and then another rocket would drop down to the moon, a lander. That's exactly what they did. But I used to think back at that. In fact, I wrote about it. I had to write about how it was going to work. And I would have a little trouble visualizing what this man could plan. He was, he was an absolutely dedicated genius. Hmm. I had no way or reason to discuss any of his politics, and I didn't, know, didn't even think about that. I was so busy uh, picking up ideas from him. And uh, I remember another thing is I asked him about the benefits of the propulsion systems, whether solid propellants or liquid propellants were preferred. And as far as he was concerned, liquid propellant was the only thing. And his argument for that was that, first of all, there was much more specific impulse, much more rocket power in the liquid propellant chemi chemicals, the fuels, than there are in solid propellant chemicals. And I thought of that when we lost this uh, shuttle uh, rocket off Florida because the trouble was with the solid propellant component and I still believe they should not be using the solid propellant for that kind of flight. They use them for smaller ones, but not for that kind of thing because the liquid propellant much better. And um, I don't know whether you recall or not, but the rocket that went to the moon, the Apollo ship, those were all liquid propellants designed for von Braun and all the Soviet flights are with, with liquid propellant. Mm. But uh, on subjects like that, you couldn't have talked to a more competent, more able man than von Braun, and that was the impression I had. He was, for his years, he was a very youngish man, he, yeah. vigorous, young. Uh, of course, his English was heavily coated with a German accent, but he was, I could understand what he said. On the other hand, Dr. Dornberger, yeah. who had been von Braun's mentor at Pinamunda. And his military superior. And his, you know, his, and his superior was a completely different person. You had to draw him out a little to get him to talk. He was more the manager, he was more the operator, and, and he was working for a private corporation than the Bell Aircraft Company in Buffalo. Um, he's a very impressive individual. Uh, for the purposes of my book, I had no reason to talk with him at much length. I saw right away that he was just going to talk administrative things and I didn't need that. I wanted to write about the technical side. Yeah. So I don't have <clears throat> a, a very uh, distinct impression of him as I do of Van Braun. Uh, they're both interesting and they were both, uh, you might say, um, 
uh, removed from Germany under this program of bringing German scientists and specialists, and they're probably two of the most famous that were brought out. I didn't realize that was 1949, that in 1955 I would be responsible for flying many of those flights out of Germany, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. Um, after I completed these textbooks uh, and some of the lesson guide material and all that we needed, the uh, Korean War broke out in June of 1950. My military base at the time, although I was working in New York, was at the Mitchell Field on Long Island in the headquarters of the um, Air Force's Continental Air Command. And <clears throat> a decision had been made to create a new Air Defense Command. And for reasons that aren't real clear to me, I was one of five officers selected to go to Colorado Springs and initiate that new command. It was a very interesting thing because we were developing radars that could uh, really cover the North American continent. And that gave us the capability to track any oncoming aircraft and later on air missiles. And we had developed interceptor fighter aircraft that were capable of handling any bombers that might come in. So we visualized the creation of an adequate defense system at that time, 1950. As rockets and missiles came in, uh, things had to change appreciably. And effectively today, we do not have an air defense system. We, we just talk about it, but we don't have one. But we thought we could build a good one in those days. And I stayed with the Air Defense Command. I was director of personnel planning for this command of 77,000 people. And uh, <clears throat> we were the first ones in our office to use computers in such a thing as, as personnel records and all that sort of thing. And, and um, it was a very interesting thing. We, we, uh, you know, we hadn't had computers. Everything was done typewriters and paper and pencil. And we were able to keep the records of, of 77,000 people up to date in real time on computers. Of course, they were the old style computers. I remember the biggest problem we had was getting rid of the excess heat generated by all these computers. But they did a good job, and we learned how to use them. This was for 77,000 government uh, yeah. Air Force? Air Force military people. And uh, in we, we handled all their records, and actually, uh, it, it became a very important thing because we could order full-size units to Korea, to the Korean War, without any trouble at all because we had all the data right there in the computer. And it had never been done before. And it was a, it was a very, and immediately, of course, it spread throughout the entire military system. But I, I believe we had the first office that did that. And that was in Colorado Springs? Colorado Springs in 1950, okay. 51. Then in 50... At the end of 51, I was, uh, I was sent to several nuclear schools. Uh, a lot of us in the military had absolutely no idea <clears throat> of handling nuclear weapons, uh, the effect of nuclear weapons, uh, what they were, and all that sort of thing. Uh, it, it was no intention to make us nuclear physicists, but what they were trying to do is teach us something about the weapons. And uh, the military was going through a very difficult period at that time because a few military people knew the enormous devastation power of hydrogen bombs, just, uh, or not hydrogen bombs, but just the atom bomb, hydrogen bomb came a little later. And it was difficult tactically to work that into a military 
plan because you get your forces lined up as we did in Germany and start moving them and you get hit by nuclear weapons and your forces are all knocked to pieces plus the fact that there is this residual radioactivity which is even worse than the explosion. So I went to three different nuclear schools and was very glad I did because I learned early in the business to have enormous respect for their power and what they could do and, and really what they could not do. And I'm still convinced that what they cannot do is be used in warfare. They could not use successfully. Yeah, they could use, be used for what you might call in warfare mass suicide, you know, world suicide, but not for victory in a war. And that's why they weren't using Korea and in Vietnam. We didn't think of it that way in those days, but that's what happened. And uh, from those schools, I was then sent to the Air Command and Staff School at uh, Montgomery, Alabama. <clears throat> this was a six-month course, and it was a very interesting course. And it was the because I had been doing writing for the uh, ROTC textbooks, I was asked to do some writing there, and uh, I actually wrote the first statement of air power and its effectiveness for the new Air Force. And it was a just a four-page paper, but it was reproduced in hundreds of thousands of copies so people could get an idea what this new uh, nuclear age air power was all about. And it interested me an awful lot, and I think it interested everybody in the Air Force. That was in 1952. That was in the spring of 52. Uh, I received orders from the Air Command Staff School to uh, go to Korea. <clears throat> it was at the height of the Korean War. And uh, I left my family in Montgomery. And when I arrived in Tokyo, as I stepped off the plane, a um, colonel was there at the foot of the stairs and asked if I was Colonel Prouty. I said, yes. He said, your orders have been changed. You're going to stay at this base. So that was the Haneda of Tokyo International Airport. Well, they, the plane was going through to Korea. They had to find my baggage and unload it. And I went in to see the commanding officer of the base, and he said, because of your background experience, primarily the experience I had at Cairo in the Air Transport Command and all that, he said, we just had a man have a heart attack who was managing Tokyo International Airport. See, this was the period of the occupation of Japan. So almost any major effort was actually run by Americans with Japanese in, you know, second position, backup positions. So before too long, I was the military manager of Tokyo International Airport, the third busiest airport in the world. And uh, however, not as busy as Cairo was during the war, and it, it was not all that much of a surprise. But it was a very interesting period, and I enjoyed working with the Japanese who were planning, you know, to take over the field as soon as our occupation ended. And I got to know many of them in those days, and. Uh, I worked with a lot of them who, who eventually formed Japanese Airlines, JAL, and uh, some of the others, manufacturers that were in the business. Uh, after about, um, and, and, and at all the time I was flying. I kept up my active heavy transport flying. And this brought me into uh, the, the Philippines, Manila, into Saigon, Bangkok, New Delhi, India, and even back to Saudi Arabia. I arrived in Saudi Arabia exactly 10 years to the date, uh, within the same month, that I had gone there with General Smith 
when I went to, to uh, visit the people from California Standard when we painted our airplane and went into Saudi Arabia back in 1943. And an interesting little thing, I arrived at Saudi Arabia and here it was built up like a modern city, you know, with all this oil money and all the oil people. What a difference it was. When I was there, there was absolutely nothing. So I got out of the airplane, got cleared with all the paperwork of bringing a plane and passengers in there. And I went quickly to a telephone, opened up the telephone book. I looked for the name of the man that we met when we landed on that beach that day, or on the sand that day, when General Smith got out of the plane and shook his hand. His name was Floyd Oliver. He was a longtime engineering employee of California Standard and one of the founders of Aramco. You know, Aramco is the most profitable corporation ever made by man. And I found his name. So just for the fun of it, I dialed his telephone number. And some man at his house answered the phone and said, Mr. Oliger is very busy right now. It was in the evening, but he was having a big party at his house, official party. And he said, but may I ask your name? And I said, well, I'm Colonel Prouty. I said, I visited Mr. Oliger here in Dauron in October 1943. The man said, just a minute, please, Colonel. And in no time, on the phone, I heard, and he said, Prouty, what are you doing? Well, we had to get the, he remembered me. Of course, I remembered him. And we had quite a reunion there. But now I couldn't believe it, what had happened to the sands of Dauron and Saudi Arabia in 10 years. Huh. What we did out of Tokyo is we ran a regularly scheduled heavy transport run from Tokyo to Okinawa to the Philippines to Saigon to Bangkok to Calcutta, New Delhi to Karachi and then to, to Dauran was called the embassy run. We served the embassies back and forth through South Asia. And again, as I learned later, uh, a certain amount of that activity had to do with the CIA. So you see, again, we're in this little fringe area of uh, work that goes on all the time, beginning with the OSS and the CIC and the CIA and the rest of it. Um, in, uh, in 1953, probably about May or June, the commander of the heavy transport squadron at Tokyo was being rotated back to the States and they asked me to transfer from managing the airport to the squadron. We had turned the airport over to the Japanese. They now were operating the field. And I became squadron commander, responsible for flights every day to Korea, mostly for the evacuation of sick and wounded, uh, flights every day to Hawaii, some to San Francisco, and uh, flights two or three times a week to Manila and Saigon and that sort of thing. We were running up, and, and then the, the continuing the embassy run that went all the way to Saudi Arabia. When was that in 1953? That was from about, uh, oh, let's say June of 53. Okay. And <clears throat> I stayed in that job until um, December of 54. Okay. Um, it, it was very interesting in that period because although none of us out there realized it, we were gradually stepping up American influence in uh, Indochina. Uh, one of the first things we realized was a lot of C-119 heavy transports, we used to call flying boxcars, were operating under an airline that we knew as, uh, as a CAT, C-A-T airline with American pilots, and uh, they were delivering supplies to the French who were deeply involved in fighting uh, Ho Chi Minh's Viet Minh forces and especially in trying to extricate the French army out of uh, Dien Bien Phu. 
And the first American airplane and crew shot down in Indochina was shot down uh, trying to supply Dien Bien Phu at that time in 1954. <clears throat> Other flights that we were operating from Manila served the logistics back and forth between Manila and Saigon for the Saigon military mission, which we'll talk about later. And I met uh, uh, then Colonel Lansdale and uh, Bohannon and many of his people who connected with that. And uh, in that long five and a half hour flight between Manila and Saigon, we spent many, many an hour talking about his activities in support of the election of President Mike Tsai Tsai and the planned activities of his organization in uh, Vietnam, which at that time uh, was just beginning. The approvals for that took place in early 1954 when we were, we were still flying that run regularly. So some of these uh, practical, everyday working experiences in the Far East played a strong role in my work later in the Pentagon between 1955 and 1963. The, um, the rest of the transport flying was rather pedestrian. And, uh, we had a very busy time. We all were doing an awful lot of flying at that period. At the end of 1954, I was uh, selected to attend the school that is run by the Joint Chiefs of Staff called the Armed Forces Staff College. That's in Norfolk, at the Norfolk Navy Base. Uh, that's a, a six-month school, an uh, excellent, excellent military course. And uh, I happened to be there for the first half of 1955. And one part of the curriculum is, uh, is quite outstanding for that period. One of the things that school did was to set up a NATO-type combat operation. They would divide the school into two forces. One would be red and one would be blue, and obviously the reds were the communists. So they were the ones that were attacking to the west. They were the ones that begin the, would initiate the attack. And those of us in the blue forces would defend against the attack, and, and it would be the typical NATO confrontation through Europe. And in the assignment of forces, <clears throat> very interesting how they do that. They assign each student a role like a commanding general, like Patton, like Bradley, like Montgomery, and, and you're in charge of what goes on through the area as though you were a regular top general in the command. It's a very, very good experience. And they had quite a lot of experience in running these courses each class as twice a year. But in 55, for the first time, they assigned a commander of nuclear forces. This was new. And they gave the Soviet Army nuclear capability. So it was the first time that two large forces, NATO and Warsaw Pact forces, would confront each other, potentially, with nuclear weapons. Well, I was made the commander of the nuclear force on the blue team and uh, had no... I'll admit, I'll admit it frankly, I had no idea what you would do with nuclear weapons in, in that kind of a war, but I figured if they can hit as hard as I know they can hit, then when I see the Soviets breaking through here or breaking through there, I'm going to hit them with everything we got and wipe them out. Whether we can use the territory afterwards or not, that'd be somebody else's, that'd be the other, other general's job. I'd take care of that one. Well, the, <clears throat> the way this plan broke loose was rather interesting. The Red Forces 
attacked through the Balkans and into Turkey and, and made very fast gains into Turkey because they, in a sense, surprised the blue forces in the main part of Europe where they thought the main attack would be, and they, they made this flank run through Turkey and the Balkans, down into Greece, and within about three days, the Red Forces had taken Greece, had about half of Turkey, and were obviously heading for the Middle East and the oil and the routes to the world through the Middle East. It was a clever maneuver, and those of us on the blue team had no idea that it would happen this way. So we didn't have enough forces in Greece and Turkey to stop them. So I presented the idea that, all right, uh, what I had done is I measured how many miles were on the Soviet front in that area. I divided it up into a certain number of nuclear weapons, and I decided if I set these nuclear weapons down like fence posts along a fence, I'd completely stop them. So I asked for the permission to drop nuclear weapons that way, and there was no way they could refuse me. I said, okay. So we dropped them. And when we saw what happened, of course on paper, or when we saw what happened, I went to the, the chief empire, umpire of the war game, a lieutenant, uh, a three-star vice admiral, and I said, Admiral, the war is over. And he said, uh, on what ground? I said, we have wiped out all of these forces. We have destroyed all of their routes. We have destroyed all of their communications and their supplies, with, and the entire territory is radioactive so that nobody can go through there, and the war is over. And, you know, it just shocked the whole group, because you see, they knew that. They knew that nuclear weapons had that capability. It took them about a day, and after that day, they called off the rest of the exit. It was supposed to run for a month. Wow. And this happened, we did it about the fourth day. But you see, it's a very important because I don't know of any other time when our military had actually confronted on the ground, on military maps, the force structures that would be used, and then the impact of what nuclear weapons could do. Because one reason I, I declared war was over, because I would have used my other nuclear weapons against any other outbreak exactly the same. And they agreed. They agreed the war was over, see. But what they really agree, what we spent the rest of the month talking about as a review of that, is what are we going to do in war plans? Huh. How on earth are we going to fight a war? Well, we had fought the Korean War to a standstill, see, no nuclear weapons. And when General MacArthur had tried to cross the Yalu River into China, he had been stopped for procedural reasons, but mainly because our administration thought but the response against his attack would be nuclear, you see? Mm -hmm. So we didn't do it. The Vietnam War had not heated up to that time. The Vietnam War was underway, but it was all covert. So this was, I think, uh, just a school exercise, but done seriously and with uh, many senior officers there. We had probably as many as 12, 10 or 12 uh, admirals and generals who were the umpires of the whole thing. Uh, I think it was a very... I know for my part, it was a very convincing activity. I had been told when I went to the school that my assignment from Command and Staff, from the Armed Force Staff College, would be back to Colorado Springs and the Air Defense Command, where I already had experience. And I uh, was quite surprised at the end of the course to find out that I was being sent to the Pentagon. Let me stop for just a second. In this course, then, it, it sounds as if they were learning from the experiences of 
you and others participating in these classes about the limitations inherent with nuclear weapons. Well, this is the way those schools are run. Okay. They're excellent schools. They're, they really are, you know, like uh, Army War College, <clears throat> National War College. They are all run that way. And the, the senior officers <clears throat> are intelligently selected to do that, to let the people who have the roles in these exercises carry out the roles just the way General Patton did. You know, right. just have the run of the Army. And uh, it's a good point you make because there was no contest between anybody right. about the things we said we did or could do as long as it was valid, you see? And, and the others recognized it right away. Well, this, this is quite true of the way these schools are run. Right. And, and it's what makes them good. They're, they're really good schools. However, in modern day clothes, they have a very serious problem that they cannot handle. Because we were talking about atom bombs. Now, the, <clears throat> the hydrogen bomb. Uh, every American should be required to read about the destruction created, the power, the force of the Bravo shot at Enoetak uh, in, what was it, 1953, 1954, that was um, above 15 megaton. It'd be unbelievable to wipe out any city, Los Angeles, Washington, and not only wipe it out, but move the debris that's lethal hundreds of miles downwind. Mm -hmm. You can't fight war with that. Yeah. So admittedly today, there are enormous problems in trying to visualize really a war. Uh, I, I personally uh, willing to go off the deep end and say we'll never fight another war. War will be fought economically from mm -hmm. here on, or by terrorists, one, mm -hmm. one end of the scale or the other. Mm -hmm. But you see, that little battle we had in 55, uh, I think, was a very significant step in the development of overall military planning. Mm -hmm. And, and I went to the Pentagon from that school and went to Air Force Plans. I was sent to the Air Force Plans office. And this was in uh, July of 1955. I had been there about, oh, I mean, three or four weeks when I received a call to go to the office of the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, General Thomas D. Hoyt. And General Hoyt told him, General Hoyt's career had been in intelligence, primarily. He'd had many other duties, but he was a very well-trained and experienced intelligence officer. And he told me that the National Security Council had published a directive, 5412, in 1954, and that that directive established how the United States government would perform and support covert operations, <clears throat> and that it required that the Department of Defense provide the material support, the personnel support, the bases, the equipment for clandestine operations, whether they were run by the CIA or by the Defense Department or both or whatever, whatever clandestine. We would provide the logistics support and that this would require special techniques and special procedures to keep it secret, to pay the bills and all that sort of, to handle people who were killed and so on. And he said, we have no policy on this. This is new. And you are going to be given an office in which you will draw up this policy in conjunction with all of the air staff experts that I needed and in conjunction with the CIA. Well, uh, I had never 
other than a peripheral day-to-day -day work, had anything to do with CIA. But um, I found out that uh, in that period, 55, a great number of those people in the CIA were ex-military people, had the same ideas about combat that I had and clandestine operations, things like that. So I sat down and for at least six months worked to draw up the paper for the uh, a formal paper, the military support of the clandestine operations of the United States government. Now, what was your title? I was the chief of Team B, <laughs> and that's a euphemism for being in charge of special operations or clandestine operations for the Air Force. I established the office and, and ran its staff, and we had staff all over the world. It was a very rather large office, special communications, and I stayed in that job, precisely the same work, same office, for till 1960 when I moved to the Office of Secretary of Defense. Okay. Now, um, in getting this work done, uh, I did a lot of work with our general counsel in the Air Force. In other words, we need a lot of legal help because clandestine work, in order to be effective, has to, uh, the bills have to be paid without, you know, you can't go to Congress and say we need $10 million because we're going to run some covert operation. You have to have the money available all the time. It has to be ready, and we have to know how to use it. Or if we use 20 airplanes in some covert work and we lost three of them, we have to account for the loss. I mean, just like you'd have to count any loss you had in a business or in the military, and on and on. And, and we've seen in the recent publicity surrounding uh, Colonel North and General Secord and all those people, of what a difficult time they had accounting for Hawk missiles and tow missiles and on and on. It's not easy. The thing that intrigued me was many of the words they used in their testimony, which apparently weren't noticed by either Congress or the press, are the code words we had in our original plan back in 1955. What were some of those typical words? Well, one of them uh, that is a really key code word is that Mr. Weinberger one day said, uh, we didn't do anything out of the ordinary. We just used the Economy Act principles and went ahead and provided what was needed for the, for the Contras and for Iran. Well, the Economy Act is the heart of the covert program. And I don't think this is the place to elaborate on that, but that's a code word which he used. And if Mr. Weinberger says we use that, then he must have known what he was doing, you see. But the press and the Congress didn't notice that, and it went through. And that was repeated many a time. Other, other of the people repeated the same terms and terms like that. But when I finished with this document, it was uh, approved by the Air Force. We had no trouble with that. Uh, we, we told the Army and the, what, we, what we call as coordinated. We coordinated with the Army and Navy, who had developed their own document, very much like ours. We got it approved by the Secretary of Defense and his special uh, counsel for this, and primarily a special office in the Comptroller's office, so that all the money and everything could be taken care of. And then I was told to go over and see Alan Dulles, who was head of the Director of Central Intelligence at that time, and his general counsel, an absolutely wonderful person named Larry Houston. And Larry Houston and I uh, worked on this for several weeks together. We weren't there for their approval. The Department of Defense doesn't need the approval of the Central Intelligence Agency. We were there just to be sure that we could cooperate on the same doctrine. The, um, the, the really interesting thing about this coordination with CIA, I'll get you into the uh, heart and core of, uh, of how covert operations really are run. You try to run them as much like an ordinary military operation as, as you could. <coughs> 
So one of the things we did, we created literally hundreds of false military organizations. We could take uh, rifles out of a marine storage facility, say a thousand rifles, and have the Marines transfer them to the Air Force. Now that's a perfectly legitimate action within the military. The Air Force credits the Marine Corps with a certain amount of money, and the Marines are happy. They can go buy more rifles if they need them, and if they don't need them, they just put the money in their own account. The Air Force has these rifles. Now, so the Marine Corps are not going to say anything. It's just a regular transaction. There's nothing, nothing going to raise eyebrows there. Now the Air Force has a thousand rifles. So the Air Force has a unit we'll call the 1234 Logistics Squadron at Fort Myer, base where we have many other units. And we assign these thousand rifles to that 1234 Logistics Unit. But that unit has nobody, or it has one man. And he has a telephone listed under that 1234 Logistics hmm. Unit. But that unit really belongs to CIA. Hmm. Now, nobody knows that except this clandestine system we established, which we call TAB-6. And the transfer mechanisms are made in accordance with the National, the National Economy Act of 1932, believe it or not, 32, as amended, as, as it's amended currently. That act permits us to do this easily and without any raise. It's a perfectly normal financial transaction within the Department of Defense. Given the fact that the Defense Department people don't know that this phony unit is not a real Air Force unit. So by transferring it to that unit, we have now put it in the hands of the CIA. That unit, though, is given a fiscal account, and we transfer enough money to cover the cost of those rifles back now to the Air Force's account. So the Marine Corps was, came out even, now the Air Force comes out even, and now the, Air, the CIA is charged for the cost of this trans, transaction. Uh, by the way, it's this system that proves how ridiculous some of the defense in this Contra thing is. The Contras don't need money. You don't transfer money, you see? But anyway, that's another story. But you can see, we were avoiding this that we knew would happen when you're talking about the trans uh, money for the Contras. It's ridiculous. We didn't transfer money for the Bay of Pigs people. We didn't transfer money for the big rebellion that we supported in Indonesia. It cost hundreds of millions of dollars. We didn't transfer a penny. Nobody knew about money. We didn't raise money from the Sheikh of Borneo or from the King of uh, Saudi Arabia, the money was right quiet in the government and nobody saw it because of the Economy Act principles, which Weinberger talked about anyway. There's something very much mixed up in this Iran-Contra thing because they didn't need the money to transfer in the first place, see? But no one else would know that. Pardon? But no one else would know that well, who was just in uh, civilian life. That's right. Nobody in the newspapers apparently, in the Congress apparently didn't know. But anyway, this is how we do it. Then the agency has a thousand rifles. Now they can put them in use on whatever project they had that had been approved for the use of those rifles, and nobody knows they're being used. With another exception, it's military people that use rifles, not agency people. So we would have, I think in my day, we had about 5,000 military people within the CIA who were there for the benefit of the agency and may or may not have been paid by the agency, depending on how we shared the benefits. And again, that gets into the intricacies of Colonel North in this case. Was Colonel North really working for the National Security Council, or was he just another Marine officer doing what the Marines wanted to do? And is he paid by the Marine Corps, therefore under the Marine Corps' jurisdiction? 
He wasn't under the jurisdiction of NSC. He just had an office there. Well, we used to do the same thing with about 5,000 people, and we had both ways of doing it, but the majority of the way was the military to pay their own men and would retain control over their own people. Well, this is the kind of coordination that we carried out during the early part of 56 with Larry Houston and some of his people until finally about the summer of 56, the entire TAB-6 coded program was approved. Then Mr. Dulles called me in one day and said that he was going to send me around the world to many of his stations, I think 40 or 42 of his chief of station around the world, with one of his selected people and then with others in the different regions, like European region, the Middle East region, and so on. So in the fall of 1956, 1956, I traveled uh, by way of Tokyo and Manila and India and Tehran and uh, Istanbul and so on, around the world to all the CIA stations. By that time, our program was in effect myself and my staff had been properly brought into all this work. We understood how it was going to work. We had the bases established. We had many people assigned. A lot of air, airplanes assigned to the program. And the work became effective as we now know it by the end of 1956. What was the purpose of your trip around the world in, in seeing to, these stations? To, uh, you see, the agency runs its business around the world under certain very important people known as the chief of station, chief of station Paris, chief of station Saigon, chief of station Manila. Well, I met 40 or 42 of them on this round of world trip. A lot of what you do in clandestine work has to be done like on a phone call and you understand each other and you have to know the person. Yeah. And it was a very good move and I got to meet these people and meet some of their staff. I knew what buildings they were working in. <laughs> For example, in Athens, they were working in what's called the MAG, the Military Aid and Assistance Group. Well, that was a staff, I think, of about 15 people, supposedly. I walked in a building with four floors crowded with people. Well, the CIA was using the MAG for cover, you see. Well, if you know that, it helps you do your business with that office. And same thing like that all over the world. Okay. Most of this trip that we made in 1956 had been carefully planned ahead of time, but there were two rather significant events which arose during the trip that, uh, that we all know about and, and sometimes need a little more understanding of them. One was the Suez Crisis in 1966. At that time, the British and French, planning together for a major covert operation, wanted to invade Egypt and overthrow Nasser, the president of Egypt. And helping them were the army of the Israelis under their famous General Moshe Dayan. Uh, just as we arrived from Tehran into uh, Istanbul, Turkey, we noticed something quite unusual. We were booked into a hotel that had not opened publicly up to that time. It was the new Hilton Hotel in Istanbul. And we had been told that. We told we had rooms, but the hotel was going to open like the next week or something, which is our glass. But the night we got there, the hotel all of a sudden filled up, and all the people were wives and children of prominent wealthy Egyptians. Well, we couldn't figure out the reason for this until a little later 
The next day, we learned of this attack on Egypt by the British and French and by Moshe Dayan's fast attack across the Sinai toward Egypt. And uh, this turned out to be a very historic event because if you'll remember, the British and French were successful with their landings and probably within a few days could have reached Cairo because in the planning of their attack, they took care of something that was absolutely essential. A clandestine force of British and French fighter aircraft destroyed every single combat aircraft that the Egyptian Air Force had. So that in their attack on Egypt, there was no air attack. They didn't have to worry about air cover. And in modern warfare, that is so important. And we learned a lot from that plan. And the other thing was that Diane's move across the Sinai was uninterrupted by any air attack. So he just moved across, and he approached Ismailia on the uh, top of the Red Sea, almost without opposition. Well, due to political situation, John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State, acted as though he was amazed by this action of the British and French and the Israelis, and spoke worldwide that that must stop, that they must recall their forces. Well, this shook the British, something awful, and the French. But they did. They stopped the forces. And then Khrushchev from Moscow issued another long-range threat. He said, if, you, if the forces aren't withdrawn, I will fire rockets on the capitals of Europe, hmm. meaning nuclear rockets, we assumed. Without uh, any delay, the British and French backed off the shores. And Diane's army stopped where it was. And this had long, long-term effect because it's quite clear that had the British and French captured Egypt and control of Suez again, there might not have been a major war in, or an escalation of the war in Vietnam or the loss of Algiers to France. And they felt very bad about this opposition from Dulles. And Dulles' claim was that he had not been told that they were going to do this. There's a lot of controversy about that. Well, we can add from our side that we knew everything they were doing because we had U-2s flying over, the, over their forces, and we knew exactly what they were doing. So Dulles' comments were not exactly accurate. With re he, They may not have been told, but he knew what was going on. Mm. The other side of it was, was the threat from Khrushchev Coming at that time, early in the rocket age, this is 56, had us going to the drawing boards immediately, and we found that a missile fired from the area of Moscow to the furthest capital in Europe would have to go about 1,700 miles. And this magic 1,700-mile figure led to the design of what was called the intermediate-range missile. People used to wonder, why would we establish this intermediate-range missile? Well, we figured if the Soviets have missiles that can go that far, we ought to have missiles that can go that far. Just like if the Soviets had a Sputnik uh, in space, we ought to have a Sputnik in space, and so on. It's the old typical mirror image game. If they have it, we need it. But these things grew out of this attack on the Suez, which is still very controversial. You can scarcely talk with an English or French man who knows about this subject without him becoming very, very emotional about the American role in that. The other side of it that's quite interesting is that the French have perfected an underground service 
such as we were developing during our trip and before for clandestine activities that was really effective and it was a commando unit under the French Navy and the leader of this was an admiral named Pouchardier the youngest admiral in the French fleet Admiral Pouchardier and his underground commandos were actually in Cairo and actually at the palace and had they been given a few more hours they would obviously have captured NASA in fact, Pouchardet said to me that the object of their attack was to put Nasser's head on a, on a plate. And, you know, they were there. And they, had the, they were in Arab custom, Arab clothes. They were a professional underground organization. They melted back into the crowds, and they, they left Cairo one by one down different trails and rejoined the Foreign Legion and disappeared. But that was another lesson we learned from that period. You see, we were developing our clandestine forces at this time. In fact, that's why we were on this trip. And we were learning lessons from these more experienced people as we did. Shortly after that, we left Istanbul. And the next landing, well, in Athens, we made a stop, which also provided a bit of information, which I guess enough has been said these days to go into it in some detail in the vicinity of Athens there was a camp for people we called stateless people they were from all various countries they were volunteers but they were the people who were used in what we call euphemistically mechanics hitmen gunmen and you know even people in that insidious trade have to have families families have to go to school they need a certain amount of training and equipment and education and, and, uh, and control. And what they do is they develop a little community. And these people live in that community. And then when they are called upon for their jobs, they do their job professionally, are brought out quickly and back into the camp, and they fade back into the community. It's something that most people have no idea that we have. However, it was President Johnson that said, the CIA runs a murder incorporated, and President Johnson knew what he was talking about. Well, I was there, and I knew what he was talking about. Um, after Athens, we went to Frankfurt, Germany, with a landing in Vienna by commercial air. As we were leaving Vienna, it was early in the evening, they delayed our plane, and delayed it and delayed it. We couldn't have, without any announcement, they just delayed the plane. Finally, they called to us and said we could get on a plane. And no sooner had the regular commercial passengers gotten on the plane than uh, 10 or 12 people rushed onto the plane, down the aisles of the plane, and they were heavily bandaged. Some of the bandages covered with blood. Some of the people very badly injured. They were all very, very emotional, men and women. And they were from Hungary. They had been taking part in this Hungarian revolution, which was so terrible at that time in 1956. I have no idea how that group was singled out to fly on that plane, except they all needed hospitalization. And they all needed to get away from Hungary. Apparently they were some of the leaders and they were, they were being searched for by the communists. So the plane flew to Frankfurt, and immediately when we got to Frankfurt, there were ambulances there that took these people off to the hospital. Our reason for going to Frankfurt was uh, because that is the CIA headquarters for Europe. And it was my first visit to the IG Farben building where they had their headquarters. We arrived on the evening of Thanksgiving. And I was pleasantly surprised to find a note on my door in the hotel where I was staying that said, 
here is your ticket on a train. Get on the train immediately, and we'll all have Thanksgiving dinner in Garmisch, in the Bavarian Alps. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't expect that at all. But it was some of the agency people there who had decided to spend Frankfurt down in the very beautiful Alps. So uh, this man who made the trip with me around the world, and I jumped on the train down the Rhine through into Bavaria and to Garmisch, and we arrived at maybe eight, 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and we spent the Thanksgiving weekend in the Alps with people we'd come over to work with. The Frankfurt headquarters are very interesting. It had been the headquarters, and still was in those days, for the interviewing what they called defectors, people from the East Europe, no matter how they got there, whether they were from Poland or the Ukraine or from uh, uh, any other Eastern European country, including Germany, and they were all interrogated against their backgrounds to determine whether or not they were true defectors, whether they thought they might be underground plants by the communists, what their skills were and what their use in, in, in this country might be, in, in America, or where they should be sent to from that area. And, you know, there were tens of thousands of these people. And among them were, we now learn, uh, thousands of ex-Nazis or Nazi sympathizers from the area who were being brought to the United States for their various skills and so on, like engineers or doctors or psychiatrists and so on. In fact, it would be interesting to a lot of people to note that in a register such as the public register of the American Psychiatric Association dated 1957, over 1,100 of the some 7,000 people listed are from Europe and a great number of them are Germans who were in the age of, you know, World War II age group. So they were out of the ex-Nazi psychiatry mm. uh, growth patterns, you know, uh, community growth pattern. Uh, it's, it's amazing that so many of them were absorbed into that community in this country, along with engineers, rocket experts, and all the rest. Uh, we also learned while we were there that uh, Frankfurt was the European base uh, for the uh, border flying and other aerial surveillance activities. This was before the U-2 started operating. It later became the European base for U-2s, but this was before that. We had aircraft flying the borders, uh, doing surveillance with um, either radar or photographic at that period, and they were quite effective. And uh, we also had a, uh, an enormous balloon program. We would launch uh, large balloons loaded with leaflets or loaded with instrumentation uh, that would provide various uh, propaganda information throughout Eastern Europe that the predominant wind is west to east there. And it's, it's an interesting program. You'd think that just random balloon wouldn't, wouldn't accomplish much, but they apparently did. <laughs> and this program was being run from that area. Uh, there, there was a base at Wiesbaden, which was entirely operated uh, under what we called Air Force cover, but was for CIA aircraft, and they were very active all over Europe. So that stop was a, a big business stop for our trip, and my work with the agency centered on that group for the next five years. Uh, they were the most active participants we had in uh, covert operations. Out of Frankfurt? Out, out of Frankfurt and Wiesbaden. And Wiesbaden. Now, from there we went to Paris, and this was a shape headquarters, European headquarters. And here we found another interesting thing, that in the post-war thinking, 
of what we call a nuclear exchange. The same thing I was talking about when I said we did some of this nuclear exchange work in the, uh, in the JCS school that I went to. The, the current war plan of the United States projected that we could set aside safe areas in the Soviet Union where neither the bombs themselves nor the radioactivity due to weather patterns, hoped for weather patterns, would leave a certain area free and we could paratroop people in there to try to create immediately an organization which could run the Soviet Union uh, after, after the tremendous slaughter of the people in a nuclear attack. It was kind of wishful thinking, but it was in the war plan, best we could do. And this was the role of Special Forces. Hmm. Special Forces was created for that post-strike purpose. That's why they existed. And that's why Special Forces was so close to the CIA, because the CIA had the responsibility in the war plan for opening up the contacts with people in these selected areas through agent networks, which were quite precarious. And the agent networks were built on the old Galen organization from World War II. So people have wondered what the pattern was for CIA to take over so much of the old Nazi intelligence organization under Galen and then turn it right around and use it. Well, this was one of its major uses. It was turned immediately back on the Soviet Union. And that's where Galen's intelligence was the best anyway. Galen, that he had perfected uh, Eastern Bloc intelligence for the Nazis when he was the chief of intelligence for Hitler, and now he was a very much a part of the American intelligence system, but on the set, focused on the same people, the Ukraine and, and Eastern Europe. A, really an amazing thing in history to think that, that Hitler's chief of intelligence, Reinhard Galen, became an army general by act of Congress, and his job was intelligence for the United States. Was a, and it, almost no break in service. He was, he was a German general right up to a certain day, and then all of a sudden he was an American general. But this is all on the record, and, and this is what he was doing. And American Army Special Forces troops were designed for this uh, safe area, stay-behind area uh, concept within our war plans. Uh, you know, war plan is the number one purpose of the military, so this is a very, very strong function. The Air Force parallel to this were some very large Air Force wings called the uh, Air uh, Communications and Resupply Wing, ARC wings. And their function was to link with special forces, in fact, to transport the special forces. Their aircraft, big bombers, B-50 bombers, had even had printing presses on board, and they had leaflet capability on board. It was a, an enormous plan, quite important. Uh, from this concept of a post-strike residual. <clears throat> well, in the discussions of how this would work, it became clear that the CIA was becoming rather dominant in, in the military service structure, in the spectrum, the Army, Navy, Air Force, and in the CIA. And all of a sudden, the European Command began, began looking on the CIA as a fourth force in nuclear warfare, which is quite a different role than anybody had ever planned for the CIA. But you see, this was 1956, 57, on in those periods, 58, and the CIA was deeply involved in Vietnam, and it was playing the fourth force, fourth force role, and it was only natural for the CIA to see itself working with special forces, and they rotated special forces 
from the post-strike function to its uh, counterinsurgency function or its civic action function because it was planned when they went into the Russian zones, they would be rebuilding city governments and all that sort of thing. Well, they move them into the pattern in Vietnam, and they thought, well, they can do pacification, they can do the strategic hamlets. And if you see how the philosophy went, the CIA took this European pattern of special forces, at Bad Tolts was their headquarters, and rolled it over through the schooling at Fort Bragg and began to use special forces in Vietnam. And it's not as strange a cycle as you would think if you see it on both sides, if you see where it originated and where it went. It was not just some random effort that special forces all of a sudden showed up in Vietnam as the Green Berets. You see, it, there was an antecedent to it, a very strong antecedent, with the CIA as the catalytic command for it. So they were in the fourth force function, and from 1945, well, until about 1945, until 1965, the CIA was actually the operating command for the military forces in Vietnam, not the army, not the military. And a lot of people haven't gone back to look at that, but that's the way things went. Still classified as a covert operation yeah, during those that's years. That's right. And, and it had, there was a reason for it, see? And we'll go on a little further and I'll explain how we changed that. But this brings us up to the period of about 58. <clears throat> By 58, the agency, as its fourth force function, had gathered quite a bit of uh, military paraphernalia. They had aircraft, they had guns, they had uh, other things that weren't originally planned for an intelligence organization. And uh, due to one of its agent pickups, <clears throat> they made a decision that they would try to overthrow the government of Sukarno in Indonesia. And we actually supplied by air a force of over 42,000 troops in Indonesia. We had over-the-beach activities from submarines of the U.S. Navy. We used bombers uh, flown by American pilots. We used uh, World War II fighter aircraft, F-51 planes under Air Force pilots. And we had an enormous military campaign, much bigger than you would ever imagine as a clandestine operation. In fact, it was far from clandestine, but it was put together as a clandestine operation. No, people didn't know we were there. We operated out of the Philippines, and we even reactivated World War II island bases in the Pacific. It was a massive program that a lot of people don't even know about. And it was headed by the famous OSS agent that I mentioned earlier when I was talking about the troops coming out of Romania, uh, Frank Wisner. Wisner set up his headquarters in Singapore to run this operation. In the Air Force, we even modified World War II bombers, B-26s, with eight guns in the nose to make them a, a good fighter bomber uh, for this entire operation. We, we modified lots of them, I don't know, 40 or 50 of them. They showed up later in uh, Vietnam, they showed up later in the Cuban activities. So this big attack on Vietnam was a major operation under CIA control. CIA was coming way beyond the small covert operation to now a, a real fourth military force within the complete structure of the Department of Defense. And, and this is why, as the Vietnam War escalated, the role of the CIA became more dominant. They were ready for it. They were prepared for it. With the failure of the Indonesian campaign, and it was a gross failure, <laughs> just we lost everything, we accomplished nothing, uh, these aircraft were in the Philippines, 
There was no place to put them, so they flew them to Vietnam. Here they had these B-26s, they had F-51s, they had T-28s, they had L-28s, they had uh, C-123s, a lot of C-54s. In other words, the Air Force, the CIA had quite an Air Force operated under Air America, the, its proprietary air company, in Vietnam in 1958 and ready for whatever action they could be used in. Well, we must keep these things in perspective. The warfare in Vietnam in 1958 was negligible. In fact, we used to fly transport planes back and forth over any part of Vietnam and had, had no fear of it. I myself have flown over Vietnam many times in that era because there was nothing to worry about. The warfare, if there was much, was up in Laos. And um, as we moved this program along, it became evident that the assets of CIA uh, were spread too much over the world and spread rather thin. So in about the period of 58 or 59, we opened a major CIA air base, operational base, in the middle of Eglin Field in Florida. Eglin Field is the largest piece of military property in the country, and there was plenty of room to add CIA's assets to that. We could keep them there secretly without people realizing they were there. And we moved this big base. We took planes from Europe and planes from Vietnam. All this stuff went back into Eglin in the period of 58, 59. 58, 59. Um, I, I think that I won't use this part of my commentary to go back and take a look at Vietnam. We'll be talking about that later. But we must keep in mind that as the years go by, especially from 1954, the, the CIA's role, uh, rather active role in Vietnam, is very dominant. But that's, that's really another story. I'm talking about a chronology now of, of things that were being run from the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. With 59, we inherited Fidel Castro. On the 1st of January, 1959, he marched down the streets of Havana, Cuba, and took over the, the reins of government in Cuba. This didn't happen lightly. I know we were watching his move as he came up through the country uh, to assume this power, and the U.S. government debated very seriously whether to to invade and keep him out of Cuba, or to just stay quiet. And I know I myself, on New Year's Eve of 1958-59, slept on a canvas cot in a temporary office building in Washington, waiting for CIA orders to go into Cuba or not. We didn't know whether we were going to go or not. And I, and I actually moved into a temporary quarters in Washington, and I saw the clock go by New Year's Eve, I'm sitting there waiting to find out whether we were going to strike Castro or let him go in Havana. That's how, that's how indecisive we were up to the point Castro came in. Sometime about one or two o'clock in the morning, one of my old friends in the CIA came in and said, "Well, you're going to either go home or spend the rest of the night here. Castro's in Cuba. We're going to let him go." Huh. And that was the first of January, 1959. Huh. Well, as the year went on, uh, and as Castro assumed his very thorough control of Cuba. Uh, one atrocity after another caught our attention, and by March of 1960, 
President Eisenhower approved a CIA plan that would permit us to organize the exiles who were here in the United States. He felt it was easier for us to keep them in our army structure instead of letting them wander around the streets in the United States. So we created a more or less of an army unit for them, a brigade, and we enlisted these people, we paid them, and kept them in camps. And so we got uh, hundreds and hundreds of these Cuban exiles of military age. And the idea of this proposal was to use uh, parachute drops, to uh, use the logistics drops of supplies to uh, rebels on the ground in Cuba, and to use a lot of over-the-beach activity. We'd use Navy ships and then pontoon boats and all over the beach. And uh, Eisenhower would hear nothing about an invasion. He would not listen to anybody that proposed an invasion. And anybody that thinks that this plan that was approved in March of 1960 by Eisenhower forecast the Bay of Pigs invasion doesn't know Mr. Eisenhower, General Eisenhower. The man who invaded Normandy is not going to invade Cuba with a few kids. And, and he, he was against it. But we did a lot of airdrops, and we did a lot of over-the-beach work, hit-and-run attacks, uh, various attempts on Castro's life, and it's all been recorded one after the other. Uh, frankly, from being quite close to it, I, I really think that nothing effective was accomplished except to increase Castro's grasp on the people of Cuba, because anybody that raised his head against Castro lost his head, and Castro just tightened his grip on the country. He instituted what's called the block system. The block system is a control. He, he had somebody that was responsible for every block in Cuba, and if somebody wasn't in that block at night, the next morning his children would be asking school, where was your father last night? You couldn't move in Cuba. Castro put, was dominant. And uh, if anything, we brought him up to that level with our sp sporadic attacks on him. During this time, Senator Kennedy, who had been in Congress ever since the end of World War II, and was much more alert to the things that were going on than people want to credit him with being. Uh, in other words, what I'm saying is he thoroughly understood, like the Hungarian uprising, the Suez crisis, and what was going on in Vietnam and in Laos and in Cuba. He was right there in Congress all those years. He was not off somewhere as a stranger to all these things. And furthermore, he had grown up as the son of the British ambassador to the Court of St. James in England. He was familiar with the diplomatic world, very familiar with it, and through that, very familiar with the secret world of secret intelligence from the British side. Kennedy had rare uh, training and experience in the things that were going on. <clears throat> People seem to think because this young man became president in a rather freaky election, that he didn't have the, the, the experience. It's not true at all. He had a tremendous amount of experience before he became. But he decided in about August of 1960 to run for the nomination for president. He was nominated, and as you'll recall, he was elected by the thinnest margin of any election we ever had. But he became president. Something interesting happened. Within a week of the time that he was elected president, we in the Pentagon, and I mean in my office where we had the um, uh, this clandestine responsibility for this clandestine work and by that time I was working for the Secretary of Defense. I had been transferred from the Air Force to the Office of Secretary of Defense where I worked in the office 
headed by General Graves Erskine, a, a retired Marine general with, a, with enormous World War II experience and a lot of diplomatic experience. When was that and that you? This, uh, this was in May of 1960. Okay. And uh, uh, General Lansdale was a member of that office and uh, a few others who have been very active in this clandestine work. Well, by the fall of 1960, <clears throat> we had decided that the Cuban exile training program was either going to stop or would remain as nothing but a hit-and-run type operation. But a week after the election of President Kennedy, and for reasons that I must say remain unclear even to me today, the CIA gave a briefing on the basis that what was going on with the Cuban exiles was going to be an invasion of Cuba. And that whereas we had been operating with a Cuban exile base of about 300 Cubans, this briefing began to talk about 3,000 Cubans. And we found out that when President Kennedy first was briefed on the Cuban program, the numbers that he heard in November 1960 were the numbers 3,000 instead of 300, and that an invasion was planned, and so on. There's an interesting little bit of gamesmanship, lamed up gamesmanship, you might say, because Eisenhower, I know from many meetings, never approved invasion. The agency created the idea of the invasion and then sold President Kennedy and his intimate staff that the invasion was part of the plan and more or less didn't give them a chance to say no. They said, hey, this is ongoing. What are you going to do with these people if you don't do it? See, that kind of thing. It's a pretty, pretty uh, ingenious little bit of gamesmanship. And it, it succeeded as far as getting the men on the beach. That was November in '60. At uh, the, the first week of December, I believe, uh, General Lansdale, who was right there in our office, took off for a quick trip to uh, Vietnam. And, uh, of course, we haven't said much about this in this bit, but as many of you know, he was instrumental in bringing President Diem into power in Vietnam, and he had gone to Vietnam in December to meet with Diem and get completely up to date about the situation in Vietnam as of 1960. Uh, Lansdale had a high regard for Diem, and I think it was reciprocated by Diem. In fact, a few days before Lansdale left for Saigon on this quite sudden and unannounced trip, he asked me to go into the city and buy a gift to be given to Diem from the people of the United States. So I went in and I bought the biggest desk set I could find, you know, a great big beautiful piece of uh, carved wood with a place to put a fountain pen and a ballpoint pen and a clock and maybe a barometer, the whole works. I thought, great big thing to go on his desk. And it had a plaque on the front of it, big brass plaque on there, but no wording because I know what I was going to say about it. So I brought it back to the Pentagon and Lansdale liked it very much. He said, but take it back. We unscrewed the plaque and have them put on the plaque to President No Din Diem, father of his country, you know, George Washington, father of his country. So I ran in town and had the plaque lettered, brought it back to Lansdale. Next day he took off for, for Saigon. He gave it to, to Diem. Diem had it on his desk. In fact, it was on his desk the day he died. It's, a, it's kind of interesting, a little anecdote about the relationship between Lansdale and Diem. 
Lansdale came back in January, and by that time, we had had the inauguration of President Kennedy, and Mr. McNamara was the new Secretary of Defense. Mr. McNamara was fascinated with Lansdale's stories about Vietnam, and uh, he brought Lansdale to the White House, where Lansdale told his current stories about Vietnam and his little anecdotes about Diem and all the rest. And Kennedy was fascinated, as the record will show. <clears throat> he apparently even more or less promised Lansdale that he was going to send him to Vietnam as ambassador, which is, of course, what Lansdale wanted. But as cooler heads looked the situation over, by about April that year, Kennedy let that pass by, and by July of 61, uh, that didn't come up at all. He, in fact, he had turned the other way. He wouldn't even let Lansdale go to Vietnam for various internecine reasons that were relatively important, one of them being the failure of the Bay of Pigs exercise. So during this inaugural period with Kennedy coming in, and with the Bay of Pigs program being the biggest thing on the burner at that moment, uh, on the clandestine operations side anyway, there were others in the wings that were just as important, the TFX fighter plane purchases and things like that. Uh, President Kennedy was confronted regularly with briefings about this invasion of Cuba. And he was reluctant to give uh, an approval. And this went on briefing after briefing, and yet the program kept operating. I had planes all over Central America. We had a bigger air force for the Cuban exiles than any country in Latin America had. We had a bigger air force just for the Cuban exiles than for any country in Latin America. And by that time, the agency had called in a very experienced Marine colonel to prepare the plan for the invasion, to make it a good plan, an effective plan. And this colonel, Jack Hawkins, and his associates had taken a page out of the book of the Suez Plan in 1956. Beginning the Suez Plan, the British and the French air units uh, destroyed every aircraft NASA had, as I said earlier. And for the Bay of Pigs, they had decided that every combat aircraft that Castro had must be destroyed before the exiles land on the beach. Now that was the criteria for the program. They must destroy the aircraft. So we used U-2s to take pictures of Cuba. And we've discovered, we knew pretty well what Castro's Air Force was anyway, but we discovered that he had about 10 combat-capable aircraft. Now I call them combat-capable because many of them we would have just called training aircraft. But they had guns and they could fight. And because some of them were jets, they were superior to any aircraft we had given the exiles, meaning we hadn't given them any jets. We gave them before uh, 26 bombers, and uh, that was about their best combat plane. But, of course, a jet could outrun that bomber simple and shoot it down easy. So we had to destroy the aircraft before we could invade. That was a premise of the tactical plan. Well, by, oh, by the middle of April... The agency was beginning to say, look, we cannot contain this force any longer. We've got all these people trained, we've got the aircraft, we've got the ships, and we're ready to invade. We've got to go, and if we don't go, what are we going to do with all these Cubans? I mean, we have to go and put Kennedy in quite a position. 
when I say they had the ships, I'd like to tell you something that I consider a pure coincidence. When I say they had the ships, I'd like to tell you something that I consider a pure coincidence. Sometime before we were ready to um, actually launch the invasion, there had been so much training and the explosion of, of various explosive devices at the agency's training camp down at what we call the farm in Virginia that we had to close the farm and move all this training down to a, uh, Elizabeth, North Carolina, where there's a harbor and a lot of open space had been an air base. And uh, they asked me to see if we could find uh, a purchase a couple of transport ships. And uh, we got some people that were in that business and they went along the coast and they found two old ships that we purchased and sent them down there to Elizabeth City and began to load them with uh, an awful lot of trucks that the Army was sending down Elizabeth City. We deck loaded the trucks and, and uh, uh, we got all of their supplies on board and everything that they needed was on two ships. It's rather interesting to note, looking back these days, that one of the ships was called the Houston. And the other ship was called the Barbara J. And uh, Colonel Hawkins had renamed the program as we selected the Bay of Pigs. The uh, code name was Zapata. I was thinking uh, a few months ago of what a coincidence that is. When Mr. Bush graduated from Yale, uh, back there in those days when I was a professor at Yale, he formed an oil company called Zapata uh, with a man who later on became uh, Litke, became president of Pennzoil. <laughs> but the company that Litke and Mr. Bush formed was the Zapata Oil Company. Mr. Bush's wife's name is Barbara J. And Mr. Bush claims it's his hometown, Houston, Texas. Now, the triple coincidence there is strange, but I think it's interesting. I know nothing about its meaning, but the, the ships were the Barbara J and the Houston, and the program was the Zapata. And with the ships loaded and ready to go, <clears throat> the agency went in to brief the president one more time. And actually, the ships were at sea. The troops were at sea. And finally, on a Sunday afternoon, well, well, we'll go back a few days. On a Saturday morning, April 15th, 15th of 1961, three B-26 bombers flew over Cuba and hit the military base near Havana and destroyed all but three of Castro's combat-capable aircraft. It was a pretty successful trip. We knew that there would be the odds of getting them all in one shot would, would be a chance. So we were ready again to strike a second time. And we had already had briefings on two strikes, one earlier and then one to follow up. We had to follow it up. So we had U-2s fly all over Cuba, and we found the three planes that were missing. They were three what we call T-Birds, T-33 jets. They were just training planes, but each one had two fifty caliber machine guns. They're fast little airplanes, easy maneuverable and they were a great threat to our Cuban exile air force. We had to destroy them. And we found them down in the southern part of Cuba, all on the same little base sitting on the ground. <clears throat> so the plan for the second attack was that we would hit them just before sunrise with four B-26 bombers. One bomber could have destroyed them, but we'd go with four right at sunrise because the brigade was due to land on the beach at sunrise. 
And if we were bringing the brigade in, certainly that would alert the aircraft and the planes would be in the air. We had to hit them at sunrise or the, everything was gone. So this was approved. <clears throat> when we briefed the president on Sunday afternoon, which was April 17th. 16th. 16th, okay. Uh, he approved the whole plan. And he approved the strike with the bombers, which are absolutely necessary. Without that, we couldn't have hit the beach. Nobody had any problem with that whatsoever. In fact, a very good friend of mine, an old agency friend, was the base commander for this operation at Puerto Cabezas in Nicaragua, where we had the four B-26 bombers just ready to go. Now, that was about 3.30 on Sunday afternoon. The ships were at sea. The president said, okay, that was the first time he approved it, by the way. Here he went oh, a few hours before the attack, before he even approved that they could go. You can see how reluctant he was, really, to approve this program. And at 1 o'clock in the morning, Monday, my telephone rang right here in Washington. And on the phone was my old friend in Puerto Cabezas, Nicaragua. He was saying, Fletch, you have got to get approval for my bombers to leave. Somebody canceled the strike. I said, that's impossible. We got the approval this afternoon from the president. Who can cancel that strike? He says, I don't know, but I've been told I can't let the bombers go. And he said, listen, and he held it. He was, in a, he was living in a little tent, and he had a, a field telephone, and he held the telephone out, and I could hear the engines going. I could hear the engines on the bombers. And I said, jokingly, I said, let them go. He said, no, they gave me orders. I can't let them go. I said, okay, I'll call the city and see what I can get. So I called into the, this control center that I'd been working with every day since that New Year's Day in 1959. And I said, listen, why aren't the bombers going? And they said, General Campbell got a call saying he cannot let them go unless he can talk to Secretary Rusk and get Secretary Rusk to approve. And he's trying to find Secretary Rusk now. And I said, yes, but we got a sunrise attack and the sun is going to come up. It'd take the bombers four hours to fly from Puerto Cabezas to the base where they were in Cuba, and any time we lost there would put the arrival of bombers after sunrise, they wouldn't be there, and they would be attacking the beach, which is what they did, of course. Well, I called as many as I could, and all I found was that everybody was in an uproar. Everything was in, in a shambles. After all this careful planning, the whole CIA section in there was just distraught with the, with the developments. And General Campbell was off trying to make some trying to find Mr. Rusk, I guess, or make arrangements with him. And uh, in a strange little side episode, Alan Dulles, who was in charge of the whole thing, was out of the United States. He wasn't even in the country. He'd gone. He'd gone out to make a speaking engagement, a speaking engagement in Puerto Rico. In, in other words, he's out of the cycle. We had to get used General Cabell or nothing. General Cabell was his deputy, as you'll recall. I had done what I could do. I was not that close to the program in a command sense. I couldn't order them to go. I had called everybody I knew to alert them. I went to sleep. I went to the office the next morning, and I found out the bombers had not gone. And I found out that already those jets had been attacking the ships. One ship had pulled offshore trying to escape. The other ship had been sunk. The men had landed on a beach. The beach landing was pretty good. But we knew the effort was just lost. In that first day, <clears throat> we lost six B-26s. The jets just chopped them up. And all due to the, this um, this call to Cabell saying you can't go unless you can get Mr. Rusk or unless you want to confront the president. The president was out of Washington. He was in Glenora, uh, Virginia, his home in Northern Virginia. 
General Cavill had been with the agency for years. He's an Air Force Lieutenant General. He had a lot of administrative experience, but not combat experience. He was not exactly the man you'd want to have fight his way through this kind of a situation, especially when somebody like the President is involved. During the latter part of this same month of April, after the failure of the Bay of Pigs, President Kennedy appointed a board to investigate what had happened and why things went wrong and what, she, what he should know about this whole operation. They were very wise about the appointment because the first man he put on was Alan Bellows himself. The second man was Admiral Arleigh Burke, who was the chief of naval operations and was the closest man on the Joint Chiefs of Staff to the daily operations of this planning. Uh, General Lemitzer was the chairman, but Burke had handled all the, because the Navy command would have the ships and all that. So Burke was on it. The third man was a man Kennedy had never met uh, until 1961, uh, General Maxwell Taylor, who had been chief of staff of the Army under Eisenhower. And then the fourth man was Bobby Kennedy. I cannot imagine a more able, competent, and what would you say, um, cleverly devised group than those four. Kennedy did it right because they came from different circles. And they sat in there in an office that was only two doors from mine. I, I talked with almost everybody going in and out of there as they went because they were all old friends I'd been working with for a long time. And they combed this operation from one thing to the other. And when they got done, Maxwell Taylor wrote a long, long letter to the president that had the full approval of the other three members, Dulles, Taylor, and, I mean, um, Dulles, Harley Burke, and, and, um, and um, Bobby Kennedy, and of course, Taylor wrote it. And in this, they came to the conclusion that the reason for the failure was because of the phone call that came from McGeorge Bundy to General Cavill. Now, people have looked at this with a lot of different views. George Bundy was a special assistant to the president. He was in the White House. He and his brother, Bill Bundy, had been very close to CIA for years. In fact, Bill Bundy worked with the CIA for years. And also, they were acquainted with President Kennedy. And George Bundy, for some reason, called Cavill. Well, what the Taylor Committee found out was that he'd been talking with Adlai Stevenson, our ambassador to the UN. And Ambassador Stevenson had been seriously embarrassed when he was asked to tell the UN that the bombers that struck Cuba on the first attack, Saturday morning, were not anything to do with America. That they were Cubans who were defecting, and as they defected, they shot up the Air Force. And he showed pictures. He showed the front page of the New York Times with pictures of one of the defectors' planes on the ground in Miami. It had Cuban markings on it and everything. Well, within an hour after Stevenson had held that picture up to show the UN, Castro had proved beyond doubt that that airplane was none of his. That he didn't have an airplane with eight guns in the nose and all that sort of thing and blew Stevenson's argument out of the water. That, that seriously embarrassed uh, Stevenson, who had been our, our ambassador to the UN, only since appointed by Kennedy, so a month or two at the most, he was irate and think that his own government would set him up for that. So Stevenson had reason to want to talk to McGeorge Bundy and say, 
No more air attacks. We're not going to get into this business without ever thinking about the landing on the beach. He didn't know about the landing on the beach. He just didn't want another air attack. And McGeorge Bundy may have, this is conjecture, but he may have been sufficiently convinced by Stevenson that no more air attacks without realizing the enormous significance of that air attack, that last strike to wipe out the last airplanes of Cuba's force, of Castro's force. So you can make an allowance for how that happened, but the record is perfectly clear that at 9.30 that Sunday night, McGeorge Bundy reversed the president's decision and called Cabell and said no airstrike tomorrow. And that, that doomed the whole thing because the airplanes destroyed the mission. Now, people have said, okay, Bundy was Kennedy's assistant right in the White House. Why didn't Kennedy straighten this out? Okay, that's a good question. But let's go one step further. That is true. But within weeks, Bobby Kennedy, Maxwell Taylor, Admiral Burke, and Alan Dulles were writing this in a letter to the president to tell the president this was their finding. Why would they have to tell him in an official letter that this was the reason it failed if he had been the man that called McGeorge Bundy? Mm -hmm. You see, Bobby Kennedy could have told him right there in the meeting, okay, I know Jack called him, let's drop it. Right now we'll say that it was Jack Kennedy's problem. You see? Or the others could have said it, because Alan Dulles was being fired. Mm -hmm. He could have said it out of just spite, you know, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. They knew that McGeorge Bundy had made a serious mistake or had made a decision that looked like a mistake later on. You see, that kind of thing. Could have been an honest decision. See, he could have thought that Stevenson was making a good point, no more air attacks, without thinking about the effect of that. They weren't military tacticians. Jack Hawkins had designed the plan, but not these people. See, it's a very mixed up thing. As a result, people later on have argued that Kennedy destroyed his own plan by not sending over uh, um, to get air cover for the beach landing. Mm -hmm. Air cover was no part of the beach landing any more than it was for the British and the French because there were supposed to be no airplanes. You don't need air cover if there's no airplanes. You don't need an umbrella if it isn't raining, see? So it, it's a shame that through the years the literature has been filled up with partial information, none of which explains this all the way from the fact that I got that phone call from Nicaragua, which explained what that man was up against, and what his cape, I could hear the planes running, you know, and I, I jokingly told him, let them all, you know, he knew I was joking, I didn't have the authority, but, and, and then people have written that, well, the problem with the Bay of Pigs was Kennedy didn't provide air cover. Well, they didn't need air cover, and, and, and General Cabell never did tell Kennedy that the call had been made. Kennedy woke up in the morning thinking there had been air cover, see? What and, do you mean by air cover? Air cover is that Kennedy should have sent um, uh, fighters from the from the aircraft carriers, Navy fighters, and wiped out those jets. In right. other words, wiped out any opposition. Okay. See, but we didn't need air cover. There was no uh, there, there was those jets were supposed to be rubble by sunrise. You see, we didn't need air cover if the plan had been allowed to proceed as it had been approved well, by him Sunday afternoon. And the plan had said that if they didn't destroy those planes don't land on the beach. That's not mm. exactly, you can't stop a snowball once it's going downhill. But even so, they had even thought, but the difference was the levels between the military tacticians 
and the 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 po political tacticians who didn't meet. See, they, this was a new Kennedy team. They didn't have even Maxwell Taylor had never met Kennedy. They, he wasn't a, an advisor to him until afterwards. See, Kennedy kept Taylor in the White House to be his military advisor to guard against this again. He didn't want it to happen again. He kept Maxwell Taylor in the White House. This is very complicated, but you can see how, if we think about it realistically, it makes sense that it could have happened. And it's the unfortunate, I, I believe it is unfortunate, the unfortunate call. I don't think it was malicious. I mean, an unfortunate call that Bundy made, that Taylor clearly writes Bundy made. You can read a book. There's a very good book out called Zapata. Operation Zapata. And, and Operation Zapata explains this word by word, signed by Maxwell Taylor, not by some author. This is Maxwell Taylor. Zapata did nothing but translate the government records into a book cover. So there's no editorializing whatsoever. So the Bay of Pigs operation was much more effective than most people think. Do, uh, why do you think Bundy didn't think to to confirm with Kennedy that this was okay before he simply called Kabul and said no airstrike? Uh, I, I think that it was. I think that he and and uh, Stevenson discussed this carefully during the evening. Stevenson wrathful after being embarrassed the day before. Stevenson not knowing about the invasion. McBundy not knowing about the tactical significance of this. You see, there's plenty of room to, to give each man his own thoughts. Uh, for a, a good example, I was sitting in the Pentagon, of course, I had been there for years, when the whole Kennedy team came in. Well, they were, they were great guys, but of all these people coming in to run the Department of Defense, Bob McNamara and on down through Ed Katzenbach, uh, Alan Einhoven, and oh, you can go on and on, Paul Nitze, Nitze's made a great record since, Bill Bundy, I don't one of them with a day of military service, and they were running the Department of Defense. That doesn't mean they didn't know how. It meant they needed some experience. Let them stay there a while, and they were going to do all right. Well, if you put yourself back to that era, Eisenhower had been in the White House for eight years. The Pentagon was run by Eisenhower people who had the vast experience of World War II behind them. They knew warfare. They knew Defense Department. All of a sudden, in comes a Kennedy team. Well, that didn't change the bureaucracy, but it changed the top. And every one of these top jobs went to people who had little or none of military experience. It was very noticeable to me. I, I was one of the few current military officers at that level at that time. And, and I'd go to lunch with these fellows. I remember Ed Katzenbach. He had been dean at Princeton. I believe I'm correct by saying Princeton. A terrific fellow. I mean, just the most enjoyable, experienced, intelligent guy you ever met. I go to lunch with him. In the Pentagon, he couldn't find, couldn't find the, the dining room, couldn't find the bathroom. You know, Pentagon's a hell of a place. And so old Ed would come down to my office and say, hey, let's go to lunch. And we'd talk about everything. They had no military experience. And, and the same with a lot of these people. But they had a tremendous capability. And if they had stayed in the Pentagon for eight years, you know, full eight years, this country would be much different than it is today. I'm not taking anything off their capability. I'm simply saying that the Bay of Pigs came too early. Mm -hmm. It was too much and a little bit too crafty for them to understand mm -hmm. at that stage of the game. Mm -hmm. And it became a disaster. And then it has never been explained properly. The words of Zapata 
the operations of Father, explain it, but you have to know what it's all about to read it properly. But it's on the record. I'm not creating a record here. I'm simply stating what is in the record there. So that influenced Kennedy's view of Vietnam. You see, when Kennedy was briefed by President Eisenhower in January of 1961, President Eisenhower told him about the hotspots around the world. He didn't use the word Vietnam at all. He talked about Laos. Time magazine in all of 1960 mentioned Vietnam only six times, and four of them had nothing to do with the war. You know, Vietnam was not a hot button. Cuba was, Laos was, Berlin was, so on. So it's easy to forget the preface to Vietnam when you don't remember these things, you see. And these led up to the Vietnam scene much more importantly than, than most people want to remember. Of course, now the, the generation gap is coming, and the people coming of age now don't remember this at all. They just know that 25 years ago, Kennedy was killed, but they don't remember the antecedents to the decision, decisions he made about the Bay of Pigs and about Vietnam. Well, this was a very interesting period. When we got this uh, Bay of Pigs thing behind us, much to our disgust, we did move toward Vietnam. <clears throat> For instance, uh, C-123 aircraft that we were using in, in these operations were flown to Vietnam. They became the Agent Orange spray planes, you see? They played that part. The B-26s that had been converted with the eight guns in the nose, what were left of them, they were flown to Vietnam, became the first heavy combat over there. Uh, helicopters that had been used in different operations in Laos were moved to Vietnam and they, they became the, the, uh, air, the air patrol capability in Vietnam. <clears throat> the P-51 fighters that we had fixed up for Indonesia, they went into Vietnam. They were available, all these things were available, and they scraped them all together and parked them in Vietnam. In other words, the war was going to happen whether anybody planned it or not. Everything was moving in that direction. So we saw the years from 1960 into 61, 62, as years when a certain amount of momentum kept going. And the only commander in Vietnam at that time was CIA. The military were in the position of being logistics commanders. We provided the equipment, we provided certain training. For instance, people don't think about helicopters. In those days, for every hour a helicopter flew, a military helicopter, it had to receive 24 hours of maintenance. Hmm. That was just a general rule, 24 hours of maintenance, which meant we had to cover Vietnam with helicopter maintenance people. Well, they were called soldiers, you see, and it looked like the troop size was growing because they were. They were soldiers or Marines or whoever, Air Force people, but they were maintaining helicopters. And any time you get the uh, helicopter squadron together, you have to get a helicopter supply unit together. You get a supply unit, you have to get a maintenance unit. So what was 400 men becomes 1,200 men. You get 1,200 men together, you gotta have a PX, you gotta have a hospital, and so on. We were creating an, uh, a structure in Vietnam built upon the operation of helicopters, and all they did was to fly the Vietnamese soldiers around, more or less like for police activity, the military, and the next thing you know, we had 3,000 men in Vietnam, then we had 6,000, and I believe by the time, end of 63, at about the time of Kennedy's death, there were somewhere between 13 and 16,000 military, so-called military, in Vietnam. The thing that was 
sort of weird about that is that a great number of those military were really not military. They were cover military. They were involved with CIA or other covert programs. That has a great significance. Has it ever occurred to you why, of all the wars the United States ever fought, that at the end of this war, we created a league of families for the prisoners of war in Southeast Asia? Why did we turn the prisoners of war program over to wives, mothers, sisters of soldiers in Vietnam? Do you know why? I was a founding director of that organization by request of a general. I was retired by that time, but I was asked to come back and work on it because I knew Vietnam so well and I knew the situation so well. The reason I was asked to do that is that we had so many men who were called Captain So-and-So, but he really was a civilian with the CIA. Now, when he got shot down, the people that captured him found his records, Captain So-and-So. But the U.S. Army wasn't missing a captain, so nobody declared him a prisoner. And the records were so messed up because of the way these people were lost out of Air America, out of helicopter support units, out of all these other contrived units that we were putting in there, not military, that insurance programs, mortgage payments, all the normal things people have to take care of, were tumbling down on this group of people called prisoners of war over there, and our own Army, Navy, and Air Force couldn't account for them. We didn't even know they were missing. I talked at great length to the father of a Navy pilot that went down. And he was telling me all the abnormal things that had happened in his dealings with the Navy since his son went down somewhere in Indochina. Didn't even know where. So I turned to the father and I said, do you know if your son was flying for the Navy? He said, of course he was. No, I said, do you know for sure? Or was he flying for CIA or Air America? That poor man was totally shocked. He went over to the Pentagon immediately and demanded an answer. He found out this son was flying for CIA and he never knew that. You see, what are you going to do like that? So we created this unusual organization called the, the League of Families for Prisoners of War in Southeast Asia. <clears throat> and I was there at the first meeting. I was there years after that. Many, many, many meetings. Because we had a very serious job to perform. We had to see, for instance, something as simple as their military insurance coverage would be acknowledged by the insurance companies. And I know things, we had a big reinsurance organization we set up for this. We had to make sure that the, uh, we try to put across the Geneva Accords to protect these men and a lot of other things that were necessary that we could not normally do for prisoners of war with this kind of a covert war. It's a really screwed up mess. But you see, it grew that way and we had to do something. Well, this is what had confronted Kennedy and his people as the war moved on into 63. By the summer of 63, Kennedy had made up his mind to get out of Vietnam. <clears throat> and I was in, by that time, I had been transferred from, from the Office of Secretary of Defense to the Office of Joint Chiefs of Staff. In 63? In, in, the, in the 62, but I'm talking about summer 63. By that time, I had been transferred. I transferred in 62. Mr. McNamara had approved the plan submitted by General Erskine to create the Defense Intelligence Agency. With that approval, General Erskine, who had been on service for an awful long time, retired, and his office, the Office of Special Operations, where I had worked and where Lansdale was working, was abolished. And Mr. McNamara uh, suggested that 
the office that I was in, the, the clandestine support of military, uh, military support of clandestine operations, be transferred to the JCS. Okay. We established the office there, the Office of Special Operations. I created it. I was its chief for the first two years until I retired in 1964. Well, during that period, <clears throat> we watched this rise of increasingly um, effective military in, uh, in Vietnam. At the same time, the Kennedy administration found no, could find no real reason to continue a war there. And they gradually began to rationalize that, look, this is a Vietnamese war. It's not an American war. We should provide support to them, but let them fight their war. And, and this rationale began to snowball into the latter part of 1963. At that time, Kennedy did something that I think was quite typical of him and quite clever. General Kulak was my boss in the JCS. He was an experienced combat-trained Marine. He sent, and he was, uh, he was probably the closest military officer to the Kennedy family, very close to Bobby Kennedy and quite close to Jack Kennedy. He, 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 he went to meetings in the White House frequently. I know because I worked right in his office. Well, Kennedy sent General Krulak to Vietnam. This was more or less a nominal visit. Krulak knew an awful lot about Vietnam. He didn't need to go, but it brought him up to date. It let him hear some briefings that were current, let him talk to some people, so that when he came back, he could write like, I've just come from Vietnam, here's the story. And when was that? And that was in September of 1963. By that time, General Krulak knew what Kennedy's plans were. So that when he came back, he sat down and started writing what became NSAM 263, or otherwise known as the Taylor-McNamara Trip Report of October 63. They both are the same, although some people don't realize that the numbered memoranda simply covers the McNamara-Taylor Report, but they're the same document. <clears throat> they bear the same authority coming from the White House as a National Security Action Memorandum. While Krulak was writing this major report, and I was one of his principal writers, I, I wrote probably a, well, as much or more than anybody else did, and it was a very large report, it was profusely illustrated, we had pictures in it, we had maps in it, when it was all done, they bound it with a big leather cover that said President John F. Kennedy from Robert McNamara and Maxwell Taylor. We flew the thing to Hawaii in a jet, gave it to the Taylor and McNamara so they could read it on their way back. To, so they, when I gave it to Kennedy, they at least know it was there. And, but what the report was really was Kennedy's own views of the Vietnam War, not anybody else's. All Krulak did and all I did was write what Kennedy had told us to do. The agent in that was Bobby Kennedy. Krulak would see Bobby Kennedy, I guess, every day, every other day, every day. We even slept in the office for a while. We were working right around the clock. We had something like 16 secretaries for every four hours, just going right around the clock like that, getting this huge report prepared. Before the days of word processors and things like that. But when, that, when Taylor and McNamara came back, and landed in a helicopter on the lawn of the Pen on the White House, they gave the president this big report. 
the president knew exactly what was in the report because it was what he had dictated to Krulak, what Krulak had written and given to them. It made the circle. It was back in Kennedy's hands. Now he could declare a policy. About two days later, if I'm correct, about October 4th or 5th, he signed this NSAM 263, which among other things said, by Christmas time, a thousand military men are coming out of Vietnam, coming home. And by the end of 65, all U.S. personnel will be out of Vietnam. Well, that was very important. For instance, in the Pacific at that time, we had a military publication called the Stars and Trust Stripes. It was the old newspaper from World War II. The headline of the Stars and Stripes that day, great big headline, said 1,000 troops being withdrawn from Vietnam uh, by Christmas and the remainder by 65. Nobody missed the point. It was right there in big letters. And this is the Kennedy plan. Privately, Kennedy had told some of his confidants that as soon as I am re-elected, I am going to get people out of Vietnam and we're going to Vietnamize that war. We'll just provide support for them and I'm going to break the CIA into a thousand pieces. Now, those are quotables that you can get from Senator Mansfield and from other intimates of the president, and that those of us working on those things day by day knew were exactly the sentiments of John F. Kennedy. <clears throat> About three weeks after he had published NSAM 263 as an official document from the White House, President Diem was killed in Vietnam. Now, General Krulak knew about the plans for the removal of the Diems from Vietnam. It did not include killing anybody. The wife of Diem's brother, knew had left Vietnam ahead of time. She was in the United States on a speaking tour, and a very prominent speaking tour, because uh, she was called the Tiger Lady. And, uh, Dragon Lady. Right. Well, what? Dragon Lady. Dragon Lady, okay. And everybody knew where she was. New was supposed to leave <clears throat> and meet her, I think, in Rome, because the other brother, who was a either bishop or cardinal in Catholic Church, had gone to Rome also, and and uh, and that left uh, New and and uh, Nodendium to leave. They were going to a parliamentary union meeting in Belgrade, and Diem had been asked to be a speaker there, so that his departure from Vietnam was supposed to be the same departure any chief of state would make who was going somewhere else to deliver a lecture and make a visit. So a special airplane, was being, a commercial airplane, not military, was being flown into Saigon that day to take him to Belgrade with his brother. The other brother had already left and then the new's wife had already left. For reasons that none of us have ever known, the two brothers, the two Diem brothers, went to the airport went up the ladder on the other stairs to the airplane and got in it and came out again. And to the surprise of the few people there that knew they were leaving, among them, the people we had spotting this affair, uh, that Krulak had, saw them get back into their car and go speeding back into town where they went into the palace, the presidential palace, and suddenly realized they were, they were in some sense incompetent. They didn't understand political government. Their people had been so repressive that they knew as soon as the Diems left they would be killed. The people would attack them. They hated that guard that was around Diem. So they had all run. And when the Diems went back into the palace it was empty. There was nobody there. 
they immediately realized what was going on and they went into a tunnel that had been dug for this purpose beforehand that went under the river over to the suburb of Saigon called Chalon. And unfortunately, at the other end of the tunnel, there were some soldiers there who had figured this out, or had been ordered to be there, and they put them in a van and they killed them in the van, and that's how they were killed. It had nothing to do with the plan that had been laid on for them. I was in my office that afternoon, <clears throat> and I just, General Krulak came in, and he, he was absolutely blanched. He said, the Diems have been killed. He said, I can't believe that they wouldn't follow the program we had lined up for them. He said, but we've just had a call saying that they went in the plane, came out of the plane, went back to the city, and, and uh, later they found them, they'd been killed. It, it, to the people that had carefully planned their movement out of the country, and of course it was going to be a coup d'etat. I mean, it, it was, a, you know, and maybe Diem felt that it was and didn't want to leave or something, but it, he was going to be out. He was never going to come back, and maybe he sensed that, or maybe somebody had tipped him off. We can't account. In fact, when Krulak turned to me and talked to me about it, he says, he said, we'll never know what went through their heads. They should have been smarter. They should have just kept going. And they'd have been out, and they would Well, if you remember, in the time of the Watergate, it was discovered that the Nixon presidential advisor named Charles Chuck Colson had employed Alan Dulles' old-time biographer, Howard Hunt, and Bay of Pigs expert, to go into the files in the White House, the confidential presidential files of the White House, and doctor those files to make it appear that Kennedy had ordered the death of Dion. That will show you how imperative it was to certain interests in Washington to make it appear that Kennedy had ordered the death of Dion. You see, that's, looking back, that was in 72, wasn't it? So 71 or 72. Decade, we, we find that that kind of retroactive uh, work was going on. It's quite insidious when you think about it. And... Um, uh, but the facts are much, much different. Kennedy did not plan the death of Diem. And it was it was stupid. It was unfortunate. But I was right where I could hear these principals talking. I was writing documents for them. I know exactly what happened. And I think this business of being that close to the things that were going on uh, actually played an interesting part in my own life. Because at just about that same time, <clears throat> Ed Lansdale, whom I'd known since 1952, and uh, who I'd been working with since uh, he came back to the Pentagon in 1956, every day, came to me one day. He was still up in uh, Mr. McNamara's office, and I was in the JCS area then. I wasn't working right in his immediate office then. But he came to me one day, and he said, Fletch, um, uh, you've been working pretty hard, and I've gotten approval to something that might be a nice paid vacation. How would you like to go to the South Pole? And I thought, you know, uh, I wouldn't mind a paid vacation. And I, I don't know about the South Pole, but, you know, if somebody's going to fly me down the South Pole, and you know, I said, okay, I'd be glad to go. So he said, well, go over to the South Pole office on Jackson Court near the White House and, and talk to Mr. So-and-so. I went over there, and I found out that they were planning to fly a VIP party to the South Pole, and they did need a military escort officer. And I was being nominated for that, and I went to the South Pole. So I was out of Washington from, I think, the 10th or 11th of November until after President Kennedy was killed. 
so that I was intimate with the things that had to do with the death of Mr. Deum, but I was completely out of the scene for the things that happened in the death of the President Kennedy. And it has occurred to me in the 25 years since that period that in some way that spells some of the pressures that were going on in Washington at that time, that it was better that I and people like me who were very intimate with affairs in Washington had be out of the way. I can't think of any other reason why I went to South Pole. I know business down there. But it's an interesting interlude. <clears throat> I came back from the South Pole um, in the November, early part of December, I, I really don't remember, but in due time, and I immediately retired from the service. I went into uh, General Krulak, and I said, General, I am through. I had been in the Pentagon nine years. <clears throat> the general was a bit upset. He told me that he had received information from the Air Force that they were going to send me to Vietnam as the Chief of Intelligence in Saigon. I have never tried to corroborate that, but that's what he told me, and that I was slated to become a general if I would stay on and take that job. And I have never corroborated that. That's what he told me. I said, I thank you very much, General. I'm going to retire. And I retired on the 1st of January, and I went to work for another company on the 2nd of January. But that period of time and those nine years that I have described from 1955 until 1964, I think are unequaled in the history of at least the modern times because I saw unfold all of these different actions that became the Vietnam War, the death of Kennedy, and many other strange events that have never been duplicated in the United States of America. It's, it's really very interesting. Huh. I'd like to do one more little exercise here. In the back of your book, The Secret Team, you have included in an appendix a job description that you said was typical for you, regardless of whether you're in the headquarters of the Air Force, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, or the Office of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I'd like you to read this for us and just comment on some of the uh, types of uh, general activities that this generalizable job description covered for you in any of the three positions you held that were somewhat interchangeable. We're getting near to this tape, so I'm going to flip it now. Um, from time to time, people have wondered and asked about this business that we euphemistically call special operations, and uh, that's the, uh, the military services providing support uh, to the clandestine activities of the government, usually clandestine activities that are at least nominally, uh, nominally under the control of the CIA. So there are official papers on this, and I said earlier that we derive the authority from the NSC Directive number 5412. In the process, the Secretary of Defense established an office called the Office of Special Operations, and I'd like to read to you verbatim, really, and then describe parts of it, what the government felt about this kind of work. Because this is a very, uh, this is a, a perfectly public paper in the days when I first acquired it. And it says quite a bit about the kind of activities that go on in covert operations. And I believe that at least from a policy guidance line, 
This would apply even to the recent things that we call the Iran hostage contra affair. The people were working along the same lines as this paper here. So we'll take a careful look at it. The following job description is taken from the U.S. Government Organization Manual, 1959 and 1960, page 143. It's a typical government definition of the term special operations. It defines quite well the work that I was in from 1955 through 1963, whether it was with the headquarters U.S. Air Force, the Office of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or the Office of Secretary of Defense. Now, I will quote the next words as direct quotations from this government operation manual. The assistant to the Office of the Secretary of Defense, Parent Special Operation, closed parents, who was General Graves B. Erskine of the Marine Corps, retired, was assistant to the Secretary of Defense, Special Operation, is the principal staff assistant to the Secretary of Defense in the functional fields of intelligence, counterintelligence, except as otherwise specifically assigned, communications security, central intelligence agency relationship and special operations, psychological warfare actions. He performs functions in his assigned fields of responsibility, such as one, recommending policies and guidance governing the Department of Defense planning and program development, two, reviewing plans and programs of the military departments for carrying out approved policies and evaluating the administration and management of approved plans and programs as a basis on which to recommend to the Secretary of Defense necessary actions to provide for more effective, efficient, and economical administration and operation and the elimination of duplication. Three, reviewing the development and execution of plans and programs of the National Security Agency. I'll break there for a moment. Most people don't realize that the two are that closely aligned, that Defense, CIA, and the National Security Agency work together and it was this Office of Special Operations that was responsible for reviewing the development and execution of plans and programs of the National Security Agency and related activities of the Department of Defense. And four, developing Department of Defense positions and providing for Department of Defense support in connection with special operations activities of the United States government. And I'll break there. That means that the Department of Defense operated as effectively in clandestine operations as did any other part of the government, or even more so. It wasn't CIA all the time or NSA all the time. Actually, the Department of Defense is the leader in all this work. And this is what this is underscoring. <clears throat> in the performance of functions, of his functions, he, this uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations, coordinates actions as appropriate with the military departments and other Department of Defense agencies having collateral or related functions and maintains liaison with the Department of State, the Director of Central Intelligence, and the Central Intelligence Agency, the United States Information Agency, and other United States and foreign government organizations on matters in his assigned fields of responsibility. In the course of exercising full staff functions, he is authorized to issue instructions appropriate to carrying out policies approved by the Secretary of Defense for his assigned fields of responsibility, 
and I'll break there. You see, that's what I was asked to do by General White when I was asked to write the instructions and policies under NSC 5412. And General okay. White's authority was derived from the Secretary of Defense, and we're reading that here. See, the, mil the, the entire military establishment. So you can see that this statement here covered everybody in the, the Department of Defense, which would include the Air Force and all the others. And that's why I was doing that work in 1955. In the course of exercising, and I'm quoting again now, full staff functions, he is authorized to issue instructions appropriate to carrying out policies approved by the Secretary of Defense for his assigned fields of responsibility. He also exercises the authority vested in the Secretary of Defense relating to the direction and control of the National Security Agency and related activities of the Department of Defense. The assistant to the Secretary of Defense Special Operation is appointed by the Secretary of Defense. Very important. He works for the Secretary of Defense. He is not there to do the job of somebody else, such as the CIA or anything else. He is a full-time employee of the Secretary of Defense. I would cite that last line to those people who have been reading the record recently about the trial of Colonel North. Colonel North was working for the Secretary of Defense when he worked for the NSC. And people shouldn't mix that up. It's too bad that the courts and the congressional committees didn't understand that distinction. But they should read this same paper because the military work under the Secretary of Defense when they're doing covert activities, not for some other office, even though they might have a desk in some other office, they are members of the military. Colonel North was pay paid by the Marine Corps, not by the National Security Council. And that's very important, and they should keep this in mind. But this is a statement, the formal statement, that tells of what the Office of Special Operations was doing, what it was responsible for. That's where I worked for two years. That's where General Lansdale worked for two and a half or three years. Uh, it was the key office for the development of the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and it was the number one office for all relationship on covert activities with the CIA, with the NSC, with the White House, with anybody else involved in this action. It isn't explained there, but in the pursuit of this kind of business, many other departments are in there. Where to work with Treasury Department, where to work with FAA about the movement of aircraft, Way to work with um, with customs people about sometimes we had flights coming in that we just could not allow customs to board the plane. Right. They understood, but they had to know about it. We had to have cleared people. We call cleared staff there. <clears throat> there were thousands and thousands of people involved in the network that's described in this paper. Most people, I think, feel that the clandestine activities are ten or fifteen people running around the world during during you know little tricks, fun and games. It's a very large organization. In many respects, all this talk about the closeness between the Office of Special Operations and the National Security Agency, this gave us effective communications all over the world. Just like we heard during Colonel North's trial, he knew immediately when things were being done after they had given orders to have these things done. NSA can do that. Right. NSA can listen in on anything they know that's going on. Well, that's why the direction of NSA was put under this office, so that we would have a uniform, worldwide system for clandestine operations. It's a very formal program. I think the only thing that isn't stated in that paper, and when I used to work there, I used to feel rather strongly that it wasn't really omitted, but it wasn't specifically cited, was the intricacies we had at handling money. You know, 
if you're going to steal money from a bank, you have to know where you're going to put it afterwards. Money is very hard to hide. Money very hard to steal. And, and when you're working in an organization like the Defense Department, the U.S. government, it is extremely difficult to move sums of money because the bureaucrats all know where that money ought to be. And you don't take money that is in the Department of Agriculture and spend it in the Department of Commerce. You just don't do it. Well, you don't take money that was uh, ostensibly appropriated for the CIA and spend it in the Defense Department or vice versa. So that <clears throat> I think as intricate as anything we did in the days we were in this kind of work was handling money. Yeah. And I spent more time in these papers that I prepared for the methodology of handling covert operations in devising the money trails as anything else. And that's why I feel that in this current business about the Iran hostage exchange, when you hear these top people talking about the use of the Economy Act of 1932, they don't say the act, of, they just say the Economy Act, the Economy Act of 1932, what they're really talking about is this very secret money channel that we established for covert operations. Um, it works all right. It's not described in this thing very well, or at all, but it was a key to how this whole business of covert operation worked. You've got to pay people all the time. You've got to buy helicopters. One of the things we had, we planes going all over the world all the time. The usual system when you're flying an aircraft all over the world is to use a credit card, just like the airlines do. The pilot gets out and goes over to the air base and he buys thousands of gallons of fuel and puts it on a credit card. <clears throat> well, how do you put a credit card on an Air America airplane that really belonged to the Air Force? You know, And in the end, how do you pay the bills? Well, we, we created a system. We created a system that every single credit card turned in on these planes in the clandestine business would arrive at a certain computer center at Dayton, Ohio. Huh. And from that computer center in Dayton, Ohio would fall into a certain box and we'd pay those bills. And we turn right around and charge CIA. But like we do it on internal books so nobody knew it. But we could follow the movement of every single airplane. If you can't, you can't run covert operations. And as you've heard Colonel North trying to explain what they did and he can't do it, it's because the thing broke down. They had trouble with the system. They need to go back and rethink the system. But it's that, a very intricate system. That level of indirection was essential to cover what the money was really being used to pay for, in other words. Yes, and the mistake they made was they were talking about hard cash. You see, the money I'm talking about is nothing but numbers. <clears throat> so many dollars in the defense budget that moved into the CIA budget, or vice versa, and so many dollars from another budget moving into this budget. We never touched a dollar. We never asked the Sultan of Brunei for a couple of million bucks. It's utterly ridiculous. <laughs> and this is going on in newspapers now for years. If you're going to help some young kids in the Honduras that are called the Contras, you, you, you don't go around borrowing millions of dollars and give them to some ex-Nicaraguan in a villa in, in Palm Beach. That's what they're doing. They go to this old guy, Calero, who used to be one of, uh, of the uh, Nicaraguan... Uh, Coca-Cola. One, one of, what was it, what's the old Nicaraguan leader down there? Samosa. Yeah, oh, yeah, Samosa. Well, uh, those guys all were millionaires under the Somoza regime. They'd like to be back being millionaires under another regime. And you don't send them millions of dollars in checks and say, hey, spend this money buying grenades. You don't even sell the How do you take, you know, the, the ridiculous thing about this all, how do you take grenades out of an army supply depot? 
You know, how do you get some army supply sergeant to give you a truckload of grenades? You don't. You can't say to him, hey, I'm going to take these down and give them to the Contras. The army supply sergeant won't give you the grenades. You've got to have a letter of authority, and it has to look like every other letter he's ever seen. You don't sell them for $3 a piece to the Contras. You see how ridiculous all this stuff is? If we just had a chance to take this one directive and then explain the directive to poor old Judge Gazelle or to, to uh, this... Uh, prosecutor watch and let them know what the facts of life are, uh, they could end this problem in a, in a few days. It wouldn't even need a jury. It's just ridiculous the way this has grown. Isn't it also true that the whole uh, scam of the trial is that if there was to be any trial at all that was correct, it would have been a military trial since he was in the operations as yeah, well, a... Well, you'd have to look at it several ways. If they reach the point in coming down the levels, you see, the first year thing you go is to find out who really made the decision and whether he had that authority. Yeah, it was Nolly North. It wasn't Poindexter. It wasn't McFarland. They work for people. So you have to go to the people they work for and say, who made the decision? The man that said this was done under the Economy Act made the decision because by saying it was done under the Economy Act, what he's doing is opening the doors of the supply channel, which is worth tens of millions of dollars. He had to have the money for it, meaning the money in the federal budget, not cash on a barrel or not cash he got from the king of Saudi Arabia. So he made the decision to release the missiles and not to sell to somebody, to exchange for hostages. When you exchange the missiles for hostages, you don't get any money. The hostages are the money. You see? I mean, you exchange for hostages. And uh, somebody kidnapped my dog and said they wanted $100. I'd give them the $100 and I'd take the dog. But, uh, or in another way, if they said they wanted my automobile for it, I'd give them my automobile and they'd take the dog. I'm not going to say they owe me money, more, you know, more money for the, I got my dog. That's the deal. Mm -hmm. Well, the whole, you know, from when, when McFarland went over to Tehran with a cake, and a Bible, the whole thing right there was explaining itself as a weird, mixed-up exercise. You don't do clandestine exercises that way. Mm -hmm. There's something terribly wrong with it when it started with a cake and a Bible. I, I bought that present for Diem to put on his desk because Lansdale was going there. Well, even that felt pretty strange to be using U.S. money to put a trinket on President Diem's desk, but it wasn't going to hurt anybody. And, uh, you know, that kind, you have to do some things. But uh, this recent thing is uh, the biggest aberration on covert operation I've ever heard of. It just, it's not covert operation at all. Some, somebody was just handling a lot of money. What's your sense, or, or do you have enough information to have any sense of the most likely explanation for how things have gone so awry? Yes, it's simple. The Iraqis fought the Iranians since 1981. And in that period, the Iraqis have released the data that it cost them $60 billion. I'm sure the Iranians fought as hard as the Iraqis did. The Iranians were using military hardware because that's most of their army and navy are supplied with things made in the United States. So when the things made in the United States wear out, like engines or parts, you have to buy them from the United States. Nobody else makes military equipment, at least not identical. So you have to buy it from the United States. 
So I believe, without too much concern about the record, although the figures, that it must have cost the Iranians about $60 billion to fight the Iraqis. And if it did, it means the Iranians purchased from somebody parts made in the United States that belong to the U.S. military or the military suppliers worth $60 billion. Not a few million, not a cake and a Bible, $60 billion. They don't want to talk about it. Hmm. So they'd rather talk about the cake and the Bible and the Contras. That's the role of Mr. Meese, hmm. is to divert the people from the $60 billion and talk about the Contras. Hmm. When you're talking about the Contras, everything that happened in Iran is quiet. If you go back and look at the newspapers, the Iranian Contra problem began with a little newspaper saying that weapons from the United States had been exchanged for hostages. That was the problem. Only that. Then when Mr. Meese went poking around in the papers in the White House, he says he found a memo that the money from that exchange was going to the Contras. Well, he made some funny statements. There's no money from the exchange, you know, not from that exchange, and there was no need of giving money to the Contras. But every eye and ear in the members of the congressional hearings turned to the Contras and they forgot Iran from that time on. Mr. Meese succeeded. Huh. You see? As simple as that. Then we get people who have other interests, and I make no brief for them, but people like the Christic Institute who amplified on this deal, and the next thing you know, everybody's looking at Nicaragua instead of Tehran, huh. see? Well, that covers up $60 billion. Hmm. And there's your problem. Hmm. <clears throat> One thing in what you said of the reading, you were saying uh, this assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Special Operations was in charge of reviewing, I believe this was, reviewing the plans and activities of the NSC. NSA. Of the NSA, yeah, okay. So the NSA being the eyes and ears of the world yeah. for us, mm -hmm. and plans that you would review would be where they would be listening or what they well, would be looking for. Let's, let's keep in mind something. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the role of the National Security Agency, NSA. It is eyes and ears. It's a purely mechanical job, really. It's like the water company. You've got to have a lot of pipes, and then the water can come in your house or somebody else's house, but the pipes have to be there first. Yeah. Now, if they want a meter, the water coming into your house, they put a meter out there and they read the meter. Well, communications is something like that. If there are communications channels all over the world, and it's all floating around up there in space, all vibrating away in space, perfectly normal in accordance with the laws of physics, if you want to, you, you use a radio, or you improve radios, to all kinds of capabilities by using computers. And they can monitor any emission that's in the air or even in the ground. There are programs that count the vibrations in the earth. They are have things sunk near roads that can count the number of trucks that pass down that road every day. They can tell you the weight of the truck by the way the, it bounces and so on. The NSA is so good at all of this emission business, whether it's radio waves or what kind of waves or what it is, they can tell you when a power transmission line is carrying the normal load of electricity or an increased load or when it's turned off. 
They can tell you when a nuclear power plant far out in the back of western China near the Mongolian border is operating or not operating. The NSA can do, but these are purely physical things that they do with instrumentation and enhance with computers. But they're not covert activities. Mm -hmm. You see, there's a difference. They're, they're in pipes. They're in a sense that somebody tells them what to do and they do it, see. The other side of it is they do so damn much that you can't read it out. They got mm -hmm. warehouses of stuff. So they learn to rotate it and reuse it and all that. But they let the computers scan it. And the computers pull stuff off by uh, signature devices that can read voices, read numbers, all kinds of things, until they get the things they need. But even then, they need direction. They need to be told, you heard so-and-so talk on the phone last week. Find that voice again and let's know what he says next time he may. And whether he's in Tokyo or whether he's in Singapore, they'll find that voice again and the computer will identify it by its code signatures, voice signatures, and they'll put the message out, see? Uh -huh. That's NSA. Uh -huh. Well, NSA needs direction. Yeah. And General Erskine was charged with the responsibility for giving them that direction. Makes a lot of sense. But it is entirely different from the kind of direction you might have working with CIA, where the CIA is an independent agency and able to do the things that human beings can devise, which are not the kind you can put under direction, but can be any and, and all kinds of things. So the CIA activities are much different from the NSA activities. Mm -hmm. One is sort of a numbers game, and the other is like dealing with poetry. <laughs> you never know what's going to be next. You see, it, it's an art, it's a skill. As, as uh, Mr. Dulles wrote in his own biography, it's the craft of intelligence. You know, it's much different. Right. But it came together in this Office of Special Operations, where the two came together to enhance each other. And as such, it was a real fine... That OSO office should never have been abolished. It was a very important office. They made a big mistake. That's when it began to go downhill, when they abolished OSO. Now, that was run by General Erskine. Erskine. And your... What you ran... You headed that office before him or after? No, I was his chief Air Force officer. Okay. And he had an Army officer and Navy officer. Mm -hmm. and his deputy was Lansdale, who was with CIA. And he had other people from CIA in the phone in Frank Hand and some others. But uh, I was his chief Air Force officer, and I had headed a similar office in the Air Force for the previous five years. Okay. So we worked that way. And then when you went in 1962 to 63 into the office of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you, your title was still dealing with special operations. Yes. See, that was to retain that capability of dealing with CIA and covert operations when they closed down OSO. They closed down OSO and handled its other work, like the NSA, through different offices after that. Uh, McNamara dispersed them into different offices. And the Office of Special Operations, the covert support, was put into JCS. Okay. And I worked under the Chairman of the Staff. But it stayed. The role was identical as far as that part was concerned. There, there was some point when you, I thought, were involved with doing for the other branches of the Defense Department what you had done for the Air Force in terms of acting as this liaison. Well, that's with JCS. With JCS, you that see, was... You see, then I had a senior Army man, a senior Navy man, and I acted as a senior Air Force man. So we had all services, and I had a Marine, and I worked for a Marine. So we had all services covered by being in the JCS. I think that was a proper way to run it. I agreed very much with General Wheeler and 
Mr. McNamara when they asked me to go down there because I felt that really was at certain times in my work with the Air Force <clears throat> we would collide with the other service and the agency would kind of bargain with us like at the beginning of the Bay of Pigs the agency went to the Navy and asked for initial support in Panama for the Bay of Pigs operation the Navy wouldn't do it so they came to the Air Force and we did it we did the Navy's role really well that's not good that that kind of colliding on these jobs if the Navy had a good reason not to do it uh, we should have dropped it right there you see well in the JCS we put it all on the same desk and we wouldn't have that kind of a mix-up mm -hmm. so that was a better way to, to run this uh, operation but you also said you felt it was a mistake to have abolished the office as it stood in the office of the Secretary oh, yeah. of Defense in, in the office of Secretary of Defense where they were hired he also had NSA, and it was very important. They should have kept those two together. And he also had the State Department liaison and the White House liaison. Okay. Okay. Uh, you were just commenting about this paper. Yeah. Um, you see, it's, it's very good to talk from this government publication that describes the roles and the function and the policy of this Office of Special Operations. If you divide those functions then some central authority is not operating to go from one line across the other line. Like if we want to work with the NSA, NSA knew that we had the same function with CIA or that we had the same functions with State Department, the same responsibilities in the White House, so that we could bridge all of these organizations together and from the dominant position of the Secretary of Defense, we could make sure that NSA and CIA and when necessary, the State Department and the White House all knew the same things. We mm -hmm. were not working at cross-purposes. Mm -hmm. It was a very effective uh, build-up that began again with this NSA, NSC 5412 paper back in 1954. Mm -hmm. Now, if that same policy was being performed today uh, by what we see again in the Iran hearings, I don't think they would have had all this misunderstanding about who was doing what, mm -hmm. because this was very clear. And all we had to do, if I ever had a question about whether or not I should do something that the CIA asked me to do, I had a very simple answer to that myself. I would go to the Secretary of Defense, who kept a record of his NSC actions, and I would say, Mr. Gates, did the NSC approve this operation the CIA had just called me to perform. He'd right. look at his record, he'd say, yes, day before yesterday we approved it. Go ahead. Yeah. That wouldn't be in the quandary that Ollie North is in. You see, we knew if something came up that involved the support of NSA, NSA could say, why are you asking us to do that? Right. I would say, well, we have had a meeting with the CIA, the Secretary of Defense says we'll do this, and by golly, we'd do it. Right. NSA would do it, see? If there, we needed coordination, with the ambassador in India or the ambassador in Thailand, we could go to the State Department as the legal representative of the de of the Secretary of Defense mm -hmm. and say, we have an operation that involves CIA, that involves NSA, that's going to take place in India, and we just want to let you know. Fine, that we don't have anybody stumbling over each other's toes, you see. Yeah. Right now, this question of whether Mr. Bush, when he went to Honduras, did this or did that, we didn't get into that kind of problem because it had been decided by everybody before we did it. And this was a very good system for this kind of secret operation. The other way to say it is the lack of it leads to the problems that we have seen now. And I think that it was a serious mistake 
for the Secretary of Defense to abolish the OSO mm -hmm. and let these responsibilities go separately on their own, as they appear to be doing now. And in order to create another OSO, Re President Reagan brought that responsibility up into the White House under the NSC. Mm -hmm. Well, they're not staffed to do mm -hmm. this. In fact, Poindexter, North, McFarlane, Earl are all military officers on duty. They all belong in the Pentagon. They don't belong over there in the White House, you mm -hmm. see. The, they made a bad mistake when they failed to see the necessity to keep this teamwork working as it was between 54 and 64, and probably several years after that. Now, who abolished it? McNamara, the OSO? McNamara. It, it happened almost inadvertently because, again, McNamara was new. He'd only been there a few months. And General Erskine, who had been in that job longer than any person had ever been assistant secretary, it was, was time for him to retire. An elderly see. man at the time. And I think just because Erskine was leaving, uh, McNamara had not had the experience with the system. And I think no suitable successor. Lansdale wasn't the type of man to be the boss. Lansdale was a good operator, but not the man to be the boss. Uh, I think they, and then they were setting up DIA at the same time, I think you're a little bit overwhelmed by all of these things and they didn't realize that losing this whole package was going to be so important. Huh. And I fought pretty hard to keep my package together and I was successful. I was glad to get it into JCS. Yeah. But I severely missed the ability to go to the NSA people or to the State Department huh. or the White House to coordinate all this. I still coordinate with the, with the CIA, but you see, not with the others. And you were so unable the, to. So the system began to break down when it was divided. You were unable to because it wasn't within your scope of contacts as easily as the, it had been. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff did not get these functions when he got the function, function, the function of special operations. Uh. So he did not get these other functions. He only got special operations. And personalities have a tremendous mm. impact. General Lemnitzer, as far as I'm concerned, an ideal chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was not interested in special operations. Mm -hmm. he, he just was not. He thought the military should be military, no fun and games. Right. And it was just the way it's his military experience, just the way he acted. Mm -hmm. So it's a different. Hey, hey, maybe we got to. He's yeah. got to go outside. He's got to go. Yeah.